Blog Talk Radio. open up with the anniversary of, uh, if you don't know what June 6th is, Operation Overlord. Uh, anniversary here when they stormed the beaches. Uh, if you really get, uh, are a student of history and you understand this was a very, very big day in history, uh, especially for the people that are really dying off. There's not many people left from that generation anymore. 
And I always say, I remember when my grandfather was talking to me, we were watching a Memorial Day parade when I was a kid, you know, back in 1981-82, and him pointing out the World War One veterans that were walking in the parade there. And he said, you need to go shake those guys' hands uh, at the end of the parade there because uh, there's not too many of them left. And, uh, you know, now they're all gone. So it won't be maybe a couple more years, and there'll be no more World War Two vets around anymore. So uh, if you know one, I'd... Uh, talk to them and and you know if they're able to you know document everything they say because that live test that first-hand testimony is going to be gone forever and then after that's just speculation on memory and what what we remember what people told us so but we have video we have documentation today so we'll go ahead and start this off right now D-Day, thousands of Allied soldiers are readying themselves for the battle ahead. Personally, I found myself saying a prayer, and it was a prayer that just didn't end. You just keep talking to yourself. And that prayer was not that may I live through this so much, as may I do my job and not let your buddy down. The paratroopers flying into France are at the leading edge of a vast invasion force. Beneath them, thousands of amphibious assault troops, special forces divisions, and fleets of bombers lead the coast of southern England. You could see all the ships at sea, literally hundreds and hundreds of ships. And you felt like you could walk from one deck to the other. The invasion plan calls for landings on five different Normandy beaches. Americans to the west on beaches codenamed Utah and Omaha. And British and Canadians to the east on Gold, Juno and Sword. Years of painstaking research has gone into this plan, with the most critical intelligence provided by air reconnaissance units. Generals have to make decisions based on several factors. Are the beaches a practical place for landing? What are the problems when you get to the beaches? How heavily are they defended? And many of these things can be determined by photographs taken from high, medium, or low level. Almost one million recon photographs have been taken in preparation for June the 6th. But tonight, the time for planning is over. The successful failure of D-Day now depends upon the men heading into France. D-Day begins just after midnight, when under the cover of darkness, three gliders are towed to the French coast. On board, Major John Howard and his elite airborne troops prepare themselves for their mission. Personally, I was frightened to death. Uh, I was literally sitting in my seat in the glider, and uh, my teeth were chattering, my knees were knocking. But I thought, well, you know, <laughs> this, this, is a, this is my last time on Earth, and um, I'm, I'm going to be, I'll probably die within the next hour or two. Six and a half hours before the beach landings are due to begin, these men must capture Pegasus Bridge. 
Lying just four and a half miles from the invasion beaches, the bridge must be taken intact. Allied forces will need to cross here as they fight their way inland. Air reconnaissance images have enabled the men to carefully plan their attack on the bridge. We could see really every detail. We could see the design of the trenches cut into the banks of the canal. We could see a pillbox on the end of the canal. We could see other German positions all around the bridges, and therefore the detail that the people were briefed on before this operation was intense. But even with the best preparation, the capture of Pegasus Bridge will be fraught with danger. I think practically all of us, without exception, thought that we were on a suicide mission. What really frightened us was the 21st Panzer, which um, was a real battle-hardened group. They were in the area around Khan, six or seven miles from where we were landing, and they told us they had around 350 tanks between them. And uh, we thought, my God, they only need half a dozen of those to come up the road and, and we're in trouble. The gliders now detach from the bombers towing them. And at just 16 minutes past midnight, the leading glider smashes down into the fields beside Pegasus Bridge. I was in the first glider, and we hit the ground around about 100 miles an hour. The airborne troops have landed just 47 yards from Pegasus Bridge, exactly as planned. Then there was a great scramble to get out because, you know, the last thing you want to be when you just landed close to a, a guarded bridge is to be sitting on a wooden, wooden glider. Almost as soon as we cleared the glider, Major Howard, typical of him, he was up on the bank of the canal saying, come on, boys, this is it, come on, and we all charged after him. We'd been told that the Germans had got the explosives on the bridge, and as soon as they thought it was under attack, they'd been ordered to blow it up. So we had to get there fast. And Danny Brotheridge, who was our platoon commander, he went charging across the bridge. We went charging after him. Lieutenant Brotheridge leads the charge across Pegasus Bridge. We were shouting our heads off, making as much noise as we could to frighten the Germans. Brotheridge fires the first Allied shots of D-Day, killing one of the sentries. But seconds later, he is himself struck down by shots from a German machine gun. The British lieutenant is the first Allied soldier killed by German bullets on D-Day. desired effect. The other German guards beat a hasty retreat. By the time we got to that end of the bridge, they decided it was uh, not a good place to be staying around. 
we scattered at either side of the bridge up and down the canal bank and uh, took up all our defensive positions. It is now 21 minutes past midnight and the airborne troops have taken control of Pegasus Bridge. Despite the first Allied casualty, it is an auspicious start to D-Day. The small group of Brits remain isolated behind enemy lines, with a long night ahead of them. They must now hold the bridge until reinforcements arrive. But with their limited supply of weapons, they may not be able to withstand an armored counterattack. Soon the men hear the comforting sound of Allied aircraft approaching. 23,400 American and British paratroopers are on their way to Normandy. And by 1 a.m., they are getting ready to jump. Lieutenant Dick Winters is one of those men flying into France. When it comes around to the time to jump, the planes are supposed to slow down to about 95. Planes are supposed to slow down to about 95, 100 miles an hour. But in this case, when we started hitting any aircraft fire, and a couple of planes starting getting hit, many pilots started to take evasive action. My plane was hit, went into a dive. At the same time he went into a dive, he threw me the green light to jump. Many Allied pilots have never encountered anti-aircraft fire before this night. Some panic, flying too low and too fast to make successful drops. At high speed, equipment is torn away from the paratroopers' packs. The only thing I had when I hit was the maps that were in my pocket and a jump knife that was strapped to my leg. That's all I had. Behind the lines in Normandy, on D-Day, the weapons scattered all over the place. This is a great way to start a war. across a 50-mile-wide stretch of coastline. Allied reconnaissance planes have photographed the entire length of the German coastal defenses, and the images they bring back strike fear into the hearts of Allied planners. This intelligence reveals that Hitler has built the greatest fortification in history. It is a 1,200-mile barrier of concrete and steel, is known as the Atlantic Wall. In charge of these defenses is Hitler's favorite general, master tactician, Erwin Rommel. For the recon pilots sent to photograph the Atlantic Wall, the risks are enormous. I sometimes felt it was rather like being John Wayne on a horse out in front of the caravan going west wandering around through the hills looking for the Indians and hoping that they wouldn't catch you and scalp you before you got home. We could cross the channel at about 50 feet below the radars at high speed, turn 
parallel to the beach at low tide, run all cameras while you're charging down the beach at about 350 miles an hour, more or less like a duck in a shooting gallery. We could see the iron structures which were sunk in the beaches at low tide and intended to stop landing craft which were coming up on those particular beaches. Every single beach suitable for amphibious landings has been protected with heavy obstacles and numerous gun emplacements. And photographs were taken of all those and returned to the intelligence people for further analysis. To some recon experts, the Atlantic Wall looks impregnable and the beach is nothing less than a killing zone. Despite these misgivings, the invasion plan is now in motion, with 23,400 American and British paratroopers leading the way. Under the cover of darkness, they must land behind the Atlantic Wall, capturing strong points and securing beach exits. These troops must pave the way for the greatest amphibious invasion ever attempted. It will begin at dawn, just five hours from now. But already, the paratroopers are in trouble. Bad weather and pilot error have left them scattered all over Normandy. Many have no idea where they have landed, nor how to find their objectives. It wasn't too long we ran into uh, one of my sergeants who was coming down this road. And we had these little uh, crickets, so it was a click-clack. We exchanged greetings, and uh, in coming down the road, he had been smart enough to stop at a stone marker. The stone marker said St. Muir Eglise. I got under a uh, raincoat one of the fellows had, because by that time I had about 12 minutes surrounding me. With the help of a flashlight another man had, I was able to orient the map very quickly because the planes were coming in and they were flying from west to east. He had told me St. Mary Glace is that town up there. There was St. Mary Glace in my map. I knew exactly where it was. Winters and his men are inland from Utah Beach, near the small village of San Mary Glace. They are five miles from their objective, Saint-Marie-du-Mont. This town must be captured quickly to secure the area for the beach landings. But to reach Saint-Marie-du-Mont before dawn, the airborne troops must move with care through hostile territory. You're behind the enemy line. You do not walk on a straight line. You follow the covers you have and you avoid run into areas where you see a German machine gun fire. You don't walk right straight into something like that. As Dick Winters and his men march towards Utah Beach, the British airborne troops who captured Pegasus Bridge sit tight. The Germans will want their bridge back, so another fight is all but inevitable. 
can't ask Sydney was anybody coming up that side of the canal bank to challenge them with the um, password and um, open fire on them if they didn't respond. In other words, to discourage counterattacks coming up the canal bank from the south. At 1.30 a.m., the dreaded counterattack begins. At this time, Howard and his men first hear the rumble of distant vehicles. Before long, German tanks approach British defensive positions around Pegasus Bridge. Two tanks suddenly started trundling up towards the bridge, and we thought, oh, God almighty, you know, for tanks to come this soon, and we literally had nothing that would stop a, um, a proper tank, a, a big tank. All the Brits have with them are two Piat guns, primitive grenade launchers that fire a small three-pound bomb. They were terribly inaccurate weapons. They were difficult to fire, and they were only effective out to about maximum of 100 yards, probably 50. We luckily had put one of our reserve platoons up near the road junction to the west of the bridges. With them was Wagger Thornton, who was a, a very experienced old soldier, a sergeant. He was a real veteran. When these tanks arrived, Wagger got down with his pier. This may be the single most important shot of D-Day. If the first German tank is hit, the bridge may be held. But if Wagger Thornton misses, the Germans will recapture Pegasus Bridge and be free to push their armoured panzer divisions right onto the landing beaches. The British sergeant has only one chance. Sergeant Thornton held his fire until the first tank was about 50 yards away from him. for the Germans. The guys in that tank obviously didn't survive. Um, one of them had his legs blown off and he was laying on the, on the road screaming his head off. The other tank, when that one was hit and blew up, went into fast reverse and trundled off the way they'd come. I think they probably reported back that we had all sorts of anti-tank equipment on the bridge and it wasn't safe for them to go near the place. Allies have repelled the first counterattack. But only six miles away near Khan, the men of the 21st Panzer Division wait beside their tanks. They could reach Pegasus Bridge in just 30 minutes, and their regimental commander, Colonel Hans von Luck, is desperate to push. But von Luck needs Hitler's personal authorization before he can advance. We stood by our tanks ready to move at 2 or 3 a.m. The drivers had their engines running, but we received no orders about which direction to take. We smoked cigarettes and waited and swore because we had no orders. At 2.30 a.m., Hitler is sleeping hundreds of miles away in Germany. None of his staff had the courage to wake him with bad news from Normandy. Hitler awakes, 
his forces will be paralyzed. He has retained personal control over the tank divisions, leaving local commanders powerless. Of course, from Berchtesgaden or from his command post in East Prussia, Hitler had no idea what the right decision would be for Normandy. The only people who can decide are the people on the ground. Hitler couldn't do that. Hitler's most trusted general, Erwin Rommel, is in charge of the defenses. And if he were present in Normandy, he would lead the German counterattack. But tonight, a simple family gathering may change the course of history. It was his wife's 50th birthday on the 6th of June, and you can understand why he would want to be at home. In Rommel's absence, there was no one who had the courage to make critical strategic decisions. That's the reason why they hesitated. But in war, hesitation can be fatal. As dawn breaks on D-Day, the German defenders on the beaches have their first sight of the Allied forces. The biggest invasion fleet in history is sailing straight towards them. all over southern England, Allied bombers are being prepared for their part in D-Day. Frank Mays is a B-17 ball turret gunner and has not yet heard news of the invasion of France. There were rumors that something big was going to happen. Nobody really knew what. One of the rumors was that they thought that the Germans were going to invade England. So everybody was pretty uptight. Frank does not have to wait much longer before he learns the truth about June the 6th and D-Day. They came through and got me out of the bed. We grumbled a little bit, went down to the flight line, and the briefing officer told us that this was the day that they were going to invade the continent. And at four o'clock in the morning, we took off. By this time, the sun was just lighting the sky in the east. I turned my turret to the rear and looked, and as far as I could see, there were airplanes, there were bombers. The Allies will put a total of 5,112 bombers into the air on D-Day. I could see the large ships down there blasting their guns, the big plumes of smoke. I could even see the white trails in the water of the landing craft as some of them began to take off. Frank Mays is soon over his target, Omaha Beach. We just carpet bombed a strip from out in the water, inland, for the invading forces to come in on. I saw shells exploding in the water, on the land, on the shore, and 
I was glad that I was not down there. In the years since D-Day, controversy has raged over the accuracy of the Omaha Beach bombardment. Not a single damn bomb was dropped on Omaha Beach. What in the hell is wrong with you guys? Can't you read the map? They had been ordered at midnight to delay their bomb drops up to 30 seconds. That would put them halfway to Paris, you see. So a lot of old French farmers back here had their living hell scared out of them. And a lot of fine dairy cattle, you know, were killed. Yet the bomber crews are certain that they did their job and did it well. I could tell that there had been a complete path bombed from the water for a full half mile inland. There was nothing left down there. To this day, the controversy is still unresolved. Certain beach areas were bombed effectively, but in other places, the German defenses remain intact. We have from the bombardment kaum etwas mitbekommen. We were hardly touched by the aerial bombardment. A great sea of bombs fell behind us, but only a few exploded anywhere near our bunker. Planners had expected the bombardment to obliterate German beach defenses, but the concrete pillboxes and bunkers overlooking the beaches are largely undamaged. The men heading in towards land know nothing of this. To them, the sight of vast bomber fleets hitting the coasts is hugely reassuring. The uh, medium bombers were flying over, and you could hear the drone, the steady drone. It looked like they were pounding the coast pretty well, and it made us feel like that we were going to walk across the beach because what could possibly, you know, withstand all of that? And we were kidding each other on the deck, you know, slapping each other on the back, see you on the beach, see you in Paris. And we were uh, pretty uh, upbeat about it. The men prepare to move from the transport ship to the smaller landing craft that will ferry them into the beach. And you had to go down rope ladders to get into the landing craft. It was 30 men to each boat. And the sea was rough. And see, that landing craft was small. And it was bouncing up and down with the wave. When I got to the bottom, I thought I was going to drop just a couple of feet. I must have dropped 10 feet. It really shook me up. started circling around and around, waiting on the rest of the uh, landing uh, parties to get out of the big boat into the ocean. The sea was rough. I mean, it was really rough. And, uh, you could see the white caps, and that's when everybody got wet and cold, and uh, most everybody had uh, gotten sick, and they were vomiting and using, uh, you know, their puke bag and throwing it over. And we were, you know, 10, 11 miles out. This image, captured on the morning of D-Day itself, shows Bob Slaughter's objective on Omaha. 
the hills behind much of the four-mile length of this beach present a problem for the Allies. They prevent armor moving inland in support of the troops. Realizing this, the Germans have concentrated their defenses around a few key roadways leading inland. The Vierville draw is one of these exit roads and is a key strategic objective for the Allies. Our job on D-Day was to land at the Verville Draw, which was probably the most heavily fortified of all the 50 miles of shoreline. But before Bob Slaughter and his men can land on Omaha, American Special Forces, men from the Ranger Battalions, must complete their own deadly mission. Top towering cliffs between Utah and Omaha beaches is a battery of five heavy guns. They are ideally placed to pummel the invasion beaches with devastating firepower. This image reveals how heavily Point Du Hoc has been bombed before D-Day in advance of the Rangers' attack. Ranger Leonard Lomel has studied these photographs in preparation for his mission. And you are told that that's a 155-millimeter gun in that bunker down there, and there's six of them. Your ambition is to go in there and sneak into those bunkers and destroy those guns and kill all the Germans around and get in your way. The men must sail to the foot of Point Du Hoc, scale the 100-foot cliff face, and knock out the guns. Luckily, the Ranger divisions have built a reputation for taking on the impossible. Now, we were not your next-door neighbor, pink-cheek guys that you remember. We were all kind of special, and we had something burning within us. We were ready for action. We were gung-ho fellows. We loved excitement and adventure. And, of course, the most adventurous activity you can get into is warfare. Slightly dangerous now, <laughs> but uh, it's exciting. General Omar Bradley, the principal commander in the field on D-Day, knew that the mission to destroy the Point du Hoc guns called for men with a special kind of determination. General Bradley had experience with the Rangers in North Africa and Sicily, and he said, those damn guys can do anything. He said, now, I know they'll knock those guns out, but there may not be much left of them after that. The plan calls for the Rangers to go in at 6.30 a.m., just ahead of the first landing waves on Omaha Beach. They will then only have a short time in which to climb the cliffs and destroy the guns. But at first light, the plan is already breaking down. On D-Day morning, about daybreak, we were all straining our eyes, trying to make out something, you know, on the horizon. As things came to get clearer and clearer, it didn't look right. And it was Colonel Rudder, who was in the boat just ahead of me, who was the first really to take action. He said, hell, that's not Point Du Hoc. And he turned around to his bosun and gave him an order to flank right. And he wouldn't. So the colonel drew himself up. He's a big man, turned around and said, right, Rudder. And this kid was so scared, he just hmm, gave it that, you see. And that turned the whole column of boats. And there we were, only within 
rifle range ready at the coast. The rangers have now lost the element of surprise. Hidden beneath the cratered surface of Point du Hoc is an underground concrete fortress. German troops are now emerging from this lair and quickly man the defenses. We arrived 38 minutes late, you see, 7.08, and the Germans were up on the top side shooting at us coming in. and keep right on going, the thing you want to constantly keep in mind, you've got to achieve that objective. That's what you're here for. And I yelled up, I said, boys, they're throwing grenades. Turn your faces in and your butts out. If you've got to get some shrapnel, your butt, you know, could handle that shrapnel a lot better than your face. Others fall to their death, but there is no question of giving in. And they were trying to cut the rope, and they were trying to shoot our fellows off the ropes, and they dropped grenades on anything they could do if they could to drive us back in the sea they were trying to do. And we, on the other hand, were trying everything we could think of to get up there and kill them. Neck and slug him over the top of the cliff. 
Both Rommel and Eichner reach the top of Point Duhok. But others are not so fortunate. Sixteen men die while climbing the cliffs. When the surviving rangers reach the top, they are shocked at the devastation reached by Allied bombers. When we got up there, it looked like the moon. There were so many shell holes and craters. You run into this shell hole, it would have some crowds in it, the next would have rangers in it. <laughs> now seek out and destroy the 155mm guns. But when they reach the bunkers, they're dumbfounded to find these weapons missing. That was a horrifying experience to sacrifice the life of men, and then find when you got there, the guns weren't there. The German troops must have moved their guns inland to keep them safe from Allied bombers. So we had to still carry out the mission find them wherever they are as soon as possible, render them inoperative as quickly as possible so that tens of thousands of other men won't die. Leonard Lomel and Jack Kuhn head inland to hunt down the German weapons. And we didn't know where we were going. It was the only road there. We saw these marks on the road, like wheel marks. Lomel and Kuhn follow the tracks one and a half miles inland. The trail leads them to an apple orchard where they stumble upon the well-concealed guns. And there were five of them, and we just looked upon them, and there was nobody guarding them. In the other direction was a 50-man armored patrol of Germans coming at us. They passed Jack and I within 20 feet of them. Now, we got to stay alive. we got to destroy those guns, render them inoperable. Using incendiary grenades, Leonard Lomel and Jack Kuhn soon disable the guns. We had accomplished our objective. The patrol had found the big guns and put them out of business. We had cut the highway and denied its use to the enemy. He couldn't send reinforcers down to Omaha because we had him blocked off. And had knocked out the communications. We had accomplished our mission. This photograph, taken on D-Day morning, shows James Eichner and his buddies resting during a lull in the fighting. We had relaxed there in our little shell hole, uh, me sitting there drink, taking a drink out of my canteen. And we expected to see our relief coming down the highway at any time. They were supposed to get there at noon on D-Day. In fact, it will be a full two days before reinforcements reach the rangers on Point Duhok. In the meantime, they will have to fight on alone, holding their position in the face of relentless counterattacks. By the time reinforcements finally arrive, only 90 rangers out of the original 225-strong force will still be standing. Further along the coast, waves of Allied troops are now approaching Omaha Beach. The landing craft are no longer in any danger from the guns of Point Du Hoc. But this beach landing will prove to be one of the bloodiest episodes of World War II. In the months before D-Day, air recon pilots have become familiar with the French coast. But today, June the 6th, 1944, will be different.
will be photographing history in the making. There were so many aircraft in the air. It was a matter of keeping your eyes open and weaving left and right to avoid formation squadrons of bombers coming in. And when I looked down at the sea, there were so many battleships, destroyers, and landing craft, I felt I could have jumped out and not got my feet wet. Throughout the whole of D-Day, the men of the recon squadrons patrolled the Normandy skies, recording the landings as they happened. The plan was to photograph the whole invasion coast, flying back and forth parallel to the beach. Far beneath the recon planes, and clearly visible on the earliest photos from the day, are the first waves of Allied landing craft. Omaha Beach. The rocket ships began to fire. The excitement was unbelievable. And the sea was terrible. That boat was floundering around. And I looked behind me and men were seasick. As we got in a little bit closer, when we got in, let's say, three or 400 yards from the shore, we started taking uh, artillery and mortars, and they started falling around. And, of course, they would send the geyser of water up, and they would rain right back on us. And then your belly really got to churning, getting pretty hairy then. German defensive troops ahead of them are battle-hardened men, reinforcements drawn from the Eastern Front. Yet even experienced soldiers such as these are stunned by the size of the invasion fleet heading towards them. We haven't done landings. When the landing fleet arrived, it was unbelievably huge. We said, this can't be happening, so many ships. The horizon was black with ships. But when they came closer, we quickly got into the bunkers and manned the machine guns. We thought it was going to be a, a cakewalk. And I remember telling the rest of them, I said, we're going to catch hell. The German bunkers are largely undamaged, and Allied landing craft on their final approach are sailing directly towards them. You can see the tracer bullets zigzagging across the beach. Plus the smoke from the mortars, and you could hear the artillery shells going over and so forth. We didn't know whether we were going to land right in front of a German pillbox or a gun emplacement or what. When that ramp went down, the captain went off first.
by the time he hit the end of the runway, he was full of bullets. Machine gun just opened up. They had a sort of crossfire from two different guns up in the cliff. I fired my gun, positioned less than 200 meters from the beach. It was absolutely horrific for the landing troops. A comrade shouted to me, Franz, don't shoot too soon. Wait until they jump into the water. When the ramps came down and they jumped, most of them fell into the water. Whether they were dead or injured, we didn't know. Two other men went off. One of them was a friend of mine. He was hit. Uh, I was the fourth man. This was the first time I'd ever been under fire. It the first time anybody tried to kill me. And when the excitement of being scared to death, I fell off to the side. And I went straight to the bottom. Now, this water was cold. It was cold as blue blazing. And it was chaos. People were screaming, you know, some were getting hit, and, and, and some were drowning because they couldn't, they had all this equipment. We had 60 pounds of equipment on, and they couldn't, uh, they couldn't keep their head above water, and uh, and they were hanging on to me. I, you know, I was 6'5", and they were pulling me under. And it was terrible trying to get in to where we could uh, breathe. And when I come back up, got my feet on the bottom and give a push, and I come up, and the captain was hollering, I'm here to help me. And I started towards him. I was maybe 10, 12 feet from him. But then I see uh, blood, water, just bubbling up red. And I said, man, I better save my own life. There's no need. And at this time, I looked back, and all the rest of them coming off the boat were being just cut down like you would. I didn't. I hadn't counted on this. I was the only survivor. There were 30 men on board that boat, and I was the only man to get off alive. So I got up as close to the water's edge as I could. And uh, my number one and number two gunners were right with me. We lost the machine gun in the, in the water. We had the tripod, which was worthless without a gun. And we had uh, one box of ammunition. And so I, I lay there on the, on the beach and I was trying to decide when to go across. And I could still see the machine gun tracer bullets, you know, flying across. The uh, tide was coming in. It was real fast. It was real. It's a terrible tide there on Omaha Beach. The tide comes in so fast at Omaha 
but many injured men are unable to crawl to safety. They will die alone in the rising surf. I finally got to the edge of the water, and I heard somebody holler my name, and it was my sergeant. Somehow he had made it to the beach, but he was badly wounded. And he raised up, hollering at me to come help him. And when he raised up on his elbow, a sniper up in the cliffs spied him. And hit him right in the head with that telescope rifle, you know, just like your deer hunt. And when that bullet hit his head, he just exploded. What was left of his head flopped there in the sand. And I knew there was no need going over there. So I buried my face and head, put my hands over my head and everything the best I could because I figured he'd seen me too. He'd almost bound to see me. And I just waited there for my shot to see me. And I just waited there for my shot to come. But somehow, evidently, he got distracted by a bigger, better target or something. And he didn't pull a trigger on me. And I started to crawl, just inch at a time. And I would peep up and see a dead body. And I'd crawl to that dead body and lay beside him for a while. During this time, I passed body parts, little everything. You can't imagine what was laying there. I run upon men that were not dead, but were just blown apart. It's just amazing how sometime you can live being blown up as bad as you were. And they were screaming and hollering, but there was nothing I could do for them. I just crawled by. combat I was in, I was scared. Uh, I mean, I was scared good. <laughs> On the eastern flank of the D-Day invasion lie the British and Canadian beaches Gold, Juno, and Sword. At 7.26 a.m. On Sword Beach, the first assault waves run into danger. We went to ground about 10 yards up the beach because the fire was so intense and uh, I did not perceive it safe to advance any further. The troops are taking mortar in gun fire and will be cut down if they advance. Fortunately, an ingenious British-designed tank comes to the rescue. 
Floating DD tanks were constructed especially for D-Day, and 21 of them have made it safely on the beach. And then the DD tank came up, and he opened the hatch and shouted, where's the fire? Round to the right, about 200 yards, he swiveled his gun around and fired one shot. No more mortar fire, complete silence, and even the machine gun fire from the enemy had gone. The gun on the DD tank was absolutely essential. It dominated the beach once it was on. That was it. Throughout the morning, DD tanks continued to attack German positions on sword. Amidst the battle, successive waves of troops are offloaded onto the beach. Some men from these later waves are remarkably level-headed. Showing no concern for gunfire and mortar blasts, they sit down to enjoy a mug of the national drink. When soldiers hit the beach, the first thing they wanted to do was, after a long sea journey, was have a brew of tea. We had to discourage them from doing that because we didn't want them on the beach in groups brewing up tea. We wanted the beaches clear so that people could move over to tanks, vehicles and everything else. No, you get off, knock those Germans out and then you can have a cup of tea. The British troops soon regroup and before long continue their advance. This aerial photograph shows men and vehicles streaming inland from Sword Beach. The British advance has been boosted by the DD tanks. But in the rough seas off Omaha Beach, all but one of the floating tanks are swamped and sink. The men here will have no armored support to protect them from German machine guns. Their only chance of cover lies far ahead at the foot of a concrete sea wall. To reach it, Sergeant Bob Slaughter must cross a great stretch of exposed beach. It was 300 or 400 yards of flat sand. That's three football fields or four football fields end to end, and it was a long way to go. While I was lying there contemplating what to do, I saw one of the men from the boat to our right. He starts running across the beach. They shoot him, and he falls to the sand. And he starts screaming because he's wounded. And one of our medics went out to help him. And they shot the medic. You know, that uh, put a chill into my thinking about going across, but, uh, you know, here comes a big wave and it's, it's pushing us in, so I decided to go, take my chances. Bob Slaughter tells his men to prepare for the long sprint for cover across the exposed width of Omaha Beach. So I started running across the beach as low as I could go and as fast as I could go. 
keep running and running and running and running. It seemed like forever. And I got to the seawall, and here comes Williams and Paul Gary right behind me. I was out of breath, and I was scared to death, you know, and, and I was, tried to light a cigarette. And my hands were shaking so bad I couldn't get my cigarette lit. And if I had to finally compose myself, and I just kept saying to myself, get a hold of yourself, you know, you got to do this, you got to do it. And finally... After a long time, inch at a time, I got to that wall. And there I met a buddy of mine that was on another boat named Max Smith from West Virginia. And he had an eye hanging out on his face. And I slapped a bandage on it. And I stayed there with him and five or six other men for a while. We, we were sort of protected from the machine gun but the tide was coming in, and dead bodies were rolling, just like a log. And we'd run out and pull one in. The Germans would shoot at us if they seen us. If we found a live one, which we did find some, some few alive, we got a medic and we, we managed to save a few of them. But that's what we did most of the day, was drag dead bodies.
skipper said, uh, if we have to run this ship ashore to knock out those guns, we're going to do it. We wanted to protect the troops that were landing because they were taking a horrible beating. When we came in for closer fire, we could see the men on the beach. It was a, just a jumble of uh, vehicles that had been hit and littered the beach. We came in within 500 yards, only scraping bottom for destroyer. The landing craft were being fired upon, and we tried to knock out the gun emplacements before the landing craft went in. So we knocked off on the first run, four or five inch firing, rapid fire, but take a pillbox right off of the side of the cliff. The boats kept targeting our bunkers' gun openings, firing into them. We had some protection, but not against direct fire. Their firepower was aimed precisely at us, and no defenses could withstand that. The destroyers cruise along the full length of Omaha Beach, shelling German defensive positions. Moved up and down the shoreline at high speed, just hitting pillboxes for the first hour or so. And then as the troops got ashore, they could direct fire where they needed it. After we'd hit a machine gun nest or a mortar, they'd say, well done, McCook, and we'd go on to another target. For the Germans on the receiving end of these shells, the impact is devastating. By 10.30 a.m., this decisive action by the destroyers has turned the tide at Omaha Beach. It gives a great morale boost to the men down at the sea wall, and in small groups, they begin the next phase of attack. I knew that if I froze up, I was dead. I knew I had to keep going. Although I knew men had froze up, it surprised me, one or two that did. Still facing a barrage of German gunfire, the men start to move off the beaches, up to the hills and bluffs inland. We all found a, a, a path up to the top of the bluff. There was a minefield on both sides of the path. It said Octoon mining all over the place. And we got up there and we started digging in. That was our mission was to get on top and then be ready for a counterattack that we knew was coming. Uh, we were expecting, uh, you know, tanks within 24 hours. As soon as we got up on top, we could see this German Nibelwerfer position. was just firing down on the beach and they were just plastering the beach and so we didn't have anything to knock out a, a gun like that it was actually a, a battery of them a first sergeant with bob slaughter and one of the few functioning radios on omaha beach presley made contact with the destroyer out the channel he uh directed the destroyer to fire around to see where it landed And then he walked it into that target. 
knocked out that Nibelwerfer position. So uh, that was uh, one of the great things that I saw on D-Day. They saved a lot of lives by knocking that thing out. All across Omaha Beach, small groups of men and officers are taking the initiative, slowly making progress inland. broken through, but they have paid a terrible price for their success. By 11 a.m., hundreds of men have already been killed on Omaha Beach, and the day is not yet over. I never dreamed we'd lose this many men. But there again, I had never known the horror of war either, when men are blown apart. I didn't dream it would happen. Over to the west on Utah Beach, casualties have not been so heavy. on the beach, the ramp went down and we walked on the beach, didn't even get our feet wet. The defending troops at Utah consist mostly of Ost battalions, made up of men from Eastern Europe who have been conscripted into the German army. Many are reluctant to risk their lives fighting for Hitler. They were totally disorganized. We were lucky to that degree that they were disorganized. So hence, many of them just threw their hands up, others were killed, many of them just took off, and we captured quite a few of them. So they offered little resistance. But as the men from Utah Beach move inland, they start to encounter heavier opposition. They're also moving into very unfamiliar terrain. As soon as we hit the other side, we were in hedgerow country. And we never had any training in hedgerow fighting. I never even heard the word hedgerow. And these Germans were waiting for us behind there. You'd move a little bit and you'd think everything was, uh, oh, this isn't going to be bad. Then all of a sudden you encounter a lot of fire. The thing that bothered us the most was uh, the snipers in the trees, you know, the enemy snipers in the trees. They had clothing that would match the, the vegetation, the trees, and uh, you never knew when you were going to be running into one of those. The hedgerows were, of course, an advantage when defending a position, as you could camouflage yourselves or hide behind them. Paratroopers from the 101st Airborne had their key landing zones in this area. Since 1 a.m., they have been battling to clear the hedgerows and mop up German resistance. Their primary mission is to seize the causeways, the road exits leading off Utah Beach, and to rendezvous with the ground troops as they move inland. But in the chaos and confusion of the night, the paratroopers have fallen well behind schedule. A large force of ground troops is already heading inland from Utah Beach. 
up causeway towards the ancient farmhouse known as Brecor Manor. At Brecor, the Germans had been smart enough to have concealed in a hedge, hedgerow, and camouflage it very well uh, for 105 cannon. Time is running out. As the ground troops move inland, they are heading right into the path of these German guns. If they start firing, hundreds of Allied infantry will be killed. The race is on. Can the 101st Airborne destroy the German guns before there is a massacre? a.m. on D-Day morning, and all along the invasion front, men are fighting their way inland. But the Allied soldiers coming ashore on Utah Beach are advancing right into the path of German 105mm heavy guns. These are hidden inland at Brecor Manor, and if they open fire, there will be carnage done on Utah Beach. Paratroopers of the 101st Airborne are attempting to knock out these weapons. A head-on attack at Brecor has a head-on attack at Brecor has already failed. So the commanding officer asks Dick Winters to try a different tactic. Colonel Schreier said, "Take care of this fire from the right flank." Yes, sir. I crawled out there by myself. got close enough that I could see where this position was. I decided I was going to hit this thing from the flank. Lieutenant Compton instructions when you get close enough to throw hand grenades in that trench. When you run into a position like that, get into the trench on one of the flanks, and then you can take them on one at a time. That's exactly what we did. Got in that trench, took that first gun, and then took on the balance of them. So it took a little time, but we took them all out. Dick Winters and his small group of 12 men have destroyed all four German guns. But they are now taking fire from concealed machine gun positions. Winters decides to pull his men back. But as he does so, he stumbles upon some intriguing German documents. As soon as I picked them up, they're real after I'm looking at them. I'm looking at maps that have the entire defense for the entire Utah Beach. Down to barbed wire, minefields, the way the machine guns were distributed, their strong points. My goodness, 
I must get this back to battalion right away. Hundreds of American lives could be saved if these maps reached the Allied commanders in time. And battalion looked at them, realized how important these were, and they gave them to Lieutenant Nixon. He took off for the beach. Within a few minutes, the defensive plans for the entire beach is in the hands of the commander. The American generals are thrilled with the maps of the Utah beach defenses. As a reward for their efforts, General Joseph Collins sends up the first available tanks to help Dick Winters finish off his work at Breakall Manor. He brought the first two tanks to come up causeway number two to me. I had to crawl up on the tank itself and point out the hedgerow back here where all these machine guns are. These tankers had not had a chance to fire a shot yet. They had a heyday. They started firing those 50 caliber machine guns and I thought they would tear the place up. They didn't know when to stop. They wiped them out in a hurry. The battle for Breakall Manor is over. The 101st Airborne has cleared the way for the assault troops to move inland. We eliminated all this fire that would have been going down causeway number two for any troops trying to come in from the beach. They could have caused an awful lot of casualties and delayed the landing. As it was, the casualties were very, very light on Utah Beach, of which we're proud. Back down on the beaches, the worst of the fighting is now over. Some of the men who earlier fought their way inland now return to the coast to pick up supplies and ammunition. Things had uh, improved a lot. You couldn't just walk up and down the beach, you know, uh, you, you would get killed because there were still snipers and uh, there was still machine gun or two up there that were still operable. Omaha Beach is still far from secure, but German prisoners are already being brought in for interrogation. Down the beach, I saw a lieutenant with a couple of German prisoners. He was asking them where the minefields were. The German, all he would say was his name, rank, and serial number. Now, this guy was a little skinny, uh, and he was ugly, and, and you know, he didn't look like a soldier at all. I would always picture the German soldiers as a, these, uh, you know, big, great, big, blonde-haired guys. This officer just got mad, and he says, damn it, he says, if you don't tell me where the minefields are, I'm going to blow your head off. And all he would say, name, rank, and serial number. So this... Officer shot his carbine right between his legs, and this German looked up at him and said, Next year, here. I thought, My God, these guys are fanatics. And he was. I mean, you know, they didn't care. I mean, they were, they were tough guys. Didn't look tough, but they were tough. These experienced, even fanatical troops are unlikely to step aside as the Allies push inland. In fact, just a few miles south of the beaches, armored panzer divisions are poised to counterattack.
By 1 p.m. on D-Day, across all five invasion beaches, the Allies have cracked the Atlantic Wall and smashed their way into occupied France. British troops are now racing towards their key objective, the city of Caen. Whoever controlled this city would control the road to Paris. The Germans are well aware of this, and in the months before the invasion, have strengthened their defences around Caen. The greatest threat to the Allies is the 21st Panzer Division, based on the outskirts of the city. Allied bombers have been pounding Caen since midnight. And in the early afternoon, their next bombardment is about to begin. We left our base at about 1 o'clock in the afternoon and we had to strike what was known as a German headquarters command. This was in the city of Caen. It was an old castle that the Germans had confiscated and used for their headquarters. We had the honor of hitting it pretty hard. And our purpose was to drop enough bombs on there to kill everybody in there and to knock out their communications systems. The B-26s do indeed find their targets. And by early afternoon, much of Khan is burning. From the high grounds, about 14 kilometers outside Khan, we looked down and saw a cloud of black smoke hanging over the city. And we thought to ourselves, my God, this is war. Werner Kortenhaus is part of the German 21st Panzer Division. And after losing precious hours waiting for orders, they have finally been directed to advance through Khan and on to attack the Allied beaches. The main part of the division tried to dive north through Khan, but they found it difficult. Because of the bombing, the city streets were impassable, so they had to drive around Khan. They didn't reach their attack positions until 4 p.m., and by then, it was far too late. Even this late in the day, the heavily armoured Panzer Division could still create problems for the Allies moving inland. The German tanks continue their advance towards the Allied beachhead. We were very unhappy. We were concerned about the dangers of driving during daylight, knowing that we could come under air attack. We would have much preferred to have driven by night. Thousands of Allied fighters are patrolling the skies over Normandy, seeking out targets of opportunity. We would attack anything that moved, no matter what it was. We would attack anything that moved, no matter what it was. Usually, as far as troops were concerned, we would only generally only have to make one pass and then they would they would get off the road and and try to hide someplace. As the German Panzer Division moves up toward the beaches, it is spotted by fighter aircraft. Yeah. 
We experienced an air attack at about 5 p.m. just east of Khan. We were standing next to our tanks, awaiting further orders, when the fighters approached us, flying low. We crawled under our tanks so that we had protection above us. But one man made a mistake of trying to climb inside via the tank hatch. And he was killed. We were shocked at how easy it was to destroy our tanks. We had thought they were good machines and not easy to knock out. But when you see five tanks blowing up in ten minutes, you soon become disillusioned. The Panzer-led counterattacks have run out of steam. In the face of such concentrated air power, they simply cannot advance. And then something remarkable happened. Towards 6 p.m., there was a massive influx of around 600 planes from England, towing gliders. They flew right overhead and on towards Kahn. These gliders contain thousands of British and American reinforcements. They will further strengthen the Allied foothold on France. And this influx caused the divisional commander to fear that we were being surrounded. So he cancelled the order to attack and immediately ordered all forces to retreat and dig in to defend the area north of Kahn. The Allies do not capture the city of Kahn on D-Day but their beachhead is secure. As darkness begins to fall, the aerial images reveal the vast fleets of gliders lining the fields of Normandy. Over the beaches, vehicles can be seen streaming inland. Even more importantly, the recon photos show the enemy's positions at the end of the day. will be in the hands of intelligence experts. These photographs taken on D-Day would be analyzed by the intelligence officer who in turn would go to the general and saying that's where we are, that's where they are, that's where we have to send the fighter bombers to counteract them, that's where we have to direct the artillery shells from offshore. And all sorts of decisions were made on what the photographs revealed as to the disposition of the friendly and enemy forces. For Ray Beckley, D-Day is now over. He, along with the other recon pilots, is back at base, preparing for a good night's sleep. Thank you, God, I was an Air Force reconnaissance pilot rather than a ground pilot. Sometimes you were very happy to be a pilot, come back for a clean uniform, a decent meal, and a decent bed. There are no soft beds for the men who have landed in Normandy. After long hours of fighting, they rest when and where they can, often disturbed by enemy activity. D-Day night, we're in one hedgerow, and across the field in another hedgerow are the Germans. 
we were tired. We had been up all day the day before, up all night, and had a hard day's fighting. We were ready to settle down. The Germans, on the other hand, they were fresh. They were shooting their guns in the air. Holler. I couldn't figure this thing out. Are these guys going to have a, a night attack? I was very concerned. In most places, there are no German night attacks. As darkness cloaks Normandy, the men of D-Day reflect upon all that they have witnessed. Many have seen their fellow soldiers die right before their eyes. It's not like old movies, you know, patriotic music playing in the background. He dies dirty, scared, hurt, in pain. And he has to lay there. You can't move him. He lays there until the grave registration comes up and picks him up. Some days later, after fighting, moves on. Those men were piled up on the beach after D-Day like wood. And uh, those people were young, vibrant, some of them smart, and they didn't live to see their 20th birthday. Missed so much of life. Never saw a microwave oven or a jet plane or some of the things we take for granted. Across the five invasion beaches, the Allies have suffered approximately 10,000 casualties. But over 146,000 American, British, and Canadian troops have safely entered Normandy. It took Hitler four years and a vast proportion of Germany's resources to build the Atlantic Wall. The Allies have broken through in just one day. Despite the terrible cost in human life, the landings have been a success. D-Day is the turning point, and from now on, the Germans will be on the defensive, slowly retreating across Europe. Dick Winters is one of thousands of men who will fight on through the long months of war ahead. But for now, his thoughts turn to home. The Germanese. I said, Lord, thank you for helping me live through the day. If I live through the war, I hope to go home and find a quiet piece of land. And I'm peace and quiet for the rest of my life. I'm proud of the fact that I did exactly that. Today on the Normandy coast, the guns are silent and the Atlantic wall crumbles into the sea. The beaches once stained with the blood of so many young men are now peaceful. Yet the epic events of that day and the countless acts of selfless heroism resonate through time. Sixty years later, their memory lives on.
for you, D-Day, right there. I know many people couldn't sit there and listen to the whole thing, you know, but uh, those that did, <clears throat> you know, you owe it to your uh, <clears throat> fellow uh, soldier there. So uh, there it is, D-Day. I hope uh, Sarge was in here. I hope Sarge was listening. Maybe not. I don't know. I have a, but uh, usually he likes it when I play those uh, D-Day uh, uh I guess you could say, uh, or these war documentaries. So, uh, anyway, what's going on there? Anybody out there? Let's see here. Well, what do we got here? Let's see. Let's read the chat room here. Uh, let's see here. Well, American Statesman's in the chat room, or it wasn't. It wasn't the chat room. Uh, New Orleans, wake up. New Orleans, he was in there. I guess he's not in there anymore. I don't know. What happened to Sarge? Sarge usually likes these things. Where the heck's he? But anyway, uh, if you missed last night's podcast, the late one, uh, we did one on the Federal Reserve uh, banking cartel, which is, uh, um, I don't have any callers, so I'm, what I do is I got a six-minute one on the Federal Reserve that explains it really good, actually. It's about six-minute long, and it's really good. It's uh, about the best one, I think, that... Uh, depicts the Federal Reserve. It's uh, actually seven minutes and 37 seconds long, so let's go ahead and play this one. Might as well. If we've got any callers, fine. Seventeen seventy-five. The American Revolutionary War began as the American colonies sought to detach from England and the Make your comeback with a community of support at Purdue Global and be more prepared than ever for this oppressive monarchy. But though many reasons are cited for the revolution, one in particular sticks out as the prime cause, that King George III of England outlawed the interest-free, independent currency the colonies were producing and using for themselves, in turn forcing them to borrow money from the Central Bank of England at interest, immediately putting the colonies into debt. And, as Benjamin Franklin later wrote, the refusal of King George III to allow the colonies to operate an honest money system which freed the ordinary man from the clutches of the money manipulators was probably the prime cause of the revolution. In 1783, America won its independence from England. However, its battle against the central bank concept and the corrupt, greed-filled men associated with it had just begun. So what is a central bank? The central bank is an institution that produces the currency of an entire nation. Based on historical precedent, two specific powers are inherent in central banking practice. The control of interest rates and the control of the money supply, or inflation. The central bank does not simply supply a government's economy with money. It loans it to them at interest. Then, through the use of increasing and decreasing the supply of money, the central bank regulates the value of the currency being issued. It is critical to understand that the entire structure of this system can only produce one thing in the long run, debt. It doesn't take a lot of ingenuity to figure this scam out. For every single dollar produced by the central bank is loaned at interest. That means every single dollar produced is actually the dollar plus a certain percent of debt based on that dollar. And since the central bank has the monopoly over the production of the currency for the entire country, and they loan each dollar out with immediate debt attached to it, where does the money to pay for the debt come from? It can only come from the central bank again, which means the central bank has to perpetually increase its money supply to temporarily cover the outstanding debt created 
which in turn, since that new money is loaned out at interest as well, creates even more debt. The end result of this system without fail is slavery, for it is impossible for the government and thus the public to ever come out of the self-generating debt. The founding fathers of this country were well aware of this. In the 20th century, the U.S. had already implemented and removed a few central banking systems, which were swindled into place by ruthless banking interests. At this time, the dominant families in the banking and business world were the Rockefellers, the Morgans, the Warburgs, the Rothschilds. And in the early 1900s, they sought to push, once again, legislation to create another central bank. However, they knew the government and public were very weary of such an institution, so they needed to create an incident to affect public opinion. So, J.P. Morgan, publicly considered a financial luminary at the time, exploited his mass influence by publishing rumors that a prominent bank in New York was insolvent or bankrupt. Morgan knew this would cause mass hysteria, which would affect other banks as well. And it did. The public, in fear of losing their deposits, immediately began mass withdrawals. Consequently, the banks were forced to call in their loans, causing recipients to sell their property, and thus a spiral of bankruptcies, repossessions, and turmoil emerged. Putting the pieces together a few years later, Frederick Allen of Life magazine wrote, The Morgan interests took advantage to precipitate the panic, guiding it shrewdly as it progressed. Unaware of the fraud, the panic of 1907 led to a congressional investigation headed by Senator Nelson Aldrich, who had intimate ties to the banking cartels and later became part of the Rockefeller family through marriage. The commission, led by Aldrich, recommended a central bank should be implemented so a panic like 1907 could never happen again. This was the spark the international bankers needed to initiate their plan. In 1910, a secret meeting was held at a J.P. Morgan estate on Jekyll Island off the coast of Georgia. It was there that the central banking bill called the Federal Reserve Act was written. This legislation was written by bankers, not lawmakers. This meeting was so secretive, so concealed from government and public knowledge, that the ten or so figures who attended were told they could only use their first names in addressing each other. After this bill was constructed, it was then handed over to their political frontman, Senator Nelson Aldrin, to push through Congress. And in 1913, with heavy political sponsorship by the bankers, Woodrow Wilson became president, having already agreed to sign the Federal Reserve Act in exchange for campaign support. And two days before Christmas, when most of Congress was at home with their families, the Federal Reserve Act was voted in, and Wilson in turn made it law. Years later, Woodrow Wilson wrote, in regret. Congressman Lewis McFadden also expressed the truth after the passage of the bill. A world banking system was being set up here, a super state controlled by international bankers acting together to enslave the world for their own pleasure. The Fed has usurped the government. Now, the public was told that the Federal Reserve System was an economic stabilizer and inflation and economic crises were a thing of the past. Well, as history has shown, nothing is further from the truth. 
The fact is, the international bankers know how to streamline the machine to expand their personal ambitions. It's a lie, it's a lie, it's a lie. For example, from 1914 to 1919, the Fed increased their money supply by nearly 100%, resulting in extensive loans to small banks in the public. Then, in 
they swear a secret allegiance, these secret societies, to destroy you, to enslave you. But oh no, we want to fight over who, who stole your bicycle down the road. We want to argue about stupid nonsense, a civil rights movement and other crap like that. And we want to debate about silly Black Panther stuff and Ku Klux Klan nonsense when, when all that, all those are funded by the top elite people too. And, there's, and these people are put out there, look at BLM, you know, I mean, George Soros. The, but yeah, it's just... It's, you, people just don't get it. The light bulb has to get on your head. Once it clicks on, you'll understand what the war is really about. But most people don't, and they won't. And that's like last night we had a big uh, argument and discussion on the show, and nothing was resolved of it. Okay, private caller. Go ahead, private caller. Hey, Joe. I'm sorry I'm getting in so late, but I went to a commemoration for... Uh, the uh, the D- 79th anniversary of the D-Day invasion uh, with a uh, yeah, group of military veterans honoring their yeah they were honoring <laughs> some still living rel- some still living veterans of the landings. One was in the uh, 29th Infantry Division, and another one was in the uh, was in an engineer unit at land that was assigned to destroy the beach obstacles, and they were still they were honoring them at it. So I went to it to. Uh, Participate. Oh, that's good. Yeah, and I assume I you did say something about it. I, I assume you did say something about it uh, today, didn't you? Yeah, I, yeah. I played a whole documentary on it, a whole hour and a half, and now I just did a seven-minute thing on the Federal Reserve because I wanted to just touch base on that from last night because we had that big argument with Warren there, which he just doesn't. Yeah. Con- he thinks he was beating me in the history debate, and and you know, if you want to tongue-tie me and twist me around and play stupid, silly little antics about what's going on with with history, you're going. To, you know, look, I was woken up a long time ago. I know what's going on. I know yeah. the game. I know who the players are. I know what's going on. You want to call me an anti-Semite? Go right ahead. You want to call me a racist? Go right ahead. That those words don't bother me. I don't feed well, into that. I don't get pigeonholed. They've lost that crap. all their cachet because they're overused, and I think most people yeah. should simply discard them unless they're actually relevant. Simply yeah. because you hold a viewpoint that is in opposition to one that is sending the country on its impending destruction as a constitutional republic does not make you a racist. Now I don't care how often yeah. you say it. <laughs> And more and more people yeah. are seeing that that is true. But, but for today, I really, you know, I'm, you know what really impressed me about the Normandy invasion and the D-Day invasion? You know what really impressed me, aside from the enormous logistical feat, which was unprecedented, the logistical feat was simply, you know, beyond, especially you consider they didn't have anything but IBM punch machines back then. They didn't have yeah, the, yeah. Way to categorize things like Amazon does with all its equipment and supplies they had to get together. Yeah, they can't fly over drones. (laughs) Well, the training was meticulous, the preparation for the men, getting them in shape. You know, even men who hadn't seen combat before, the preparations for the landing were just amazing, even though they didn't plan them for the hedgerow fighting, which you can understand because it might have tipped off the Germans as to where the landing was going to be. They really only prepared for the beach assault. But they weren't really prepared to fight in the hedgerows because the hedgerows was like fighting in, in, in a checkered off checkerboard jungles. And the Germans made masterful use of the terrain to delay the Allies. In fact, they did such a good job of it that we were using what their defense preparation was as a model when I was in Germany as to how to uh, attrit Soviet forces and fall back to phase lines in a similar manner that the Germans did. I mean, uh, it was that impressive. But what really gets me about the the Operation Overlord and what they did was 
the initiative the men on the beach showed, particularly at Omaha and Utah beaches, when the plan went to hell. Everything was shot to hell. The men in Utah Beach were landed in the wrong place. They weren't where they were supposed to be. Thanks to uh, Brigadier General Theodore Roosevelt, Jr., who just sized up the situation where he was, said, okay, we're going to start the war from here. And he just rearranged everything on the fly. And if you have any idea of the enormous feat it is to move an entire corps on a new objective on a fly under fire, you will appreciate what a great feat that was. And his feat was even eclipsed by what happened on Omaha because everything went to hell and back on Omaha. I mean, everything. And nothing was where it was supposed to be. The bombing mission didn't put one crater on the beach for the soldiers to take cover in. It didn't destroy one beach obstacle or one resistance nest with all the machine guns in it. Not one single thing did it destroy. The, they were, the, the, the naval gunfire, they obscured the movement inland, and they couldn't see where to put the naval gunfire on and support the troops. And here these guys were trying to figure out what they're supposed to do. And the assistant division commander, a brigadier general named Norman Coda, came ashore on the beach, rallied men like he was a squad leader, and this brigadier general with a Tommy gun in his hand and hand grenades was leading squads to assault German bunkers, take them out so he get them in, moving in, clear away for the engineers to get up and destroy the beach obstacles and the barbed wire. It was amazing. And they took the initiative yeah, to do yeah. this. Because everything was fine. And that just goes to show you what happens when you teach troops to be able to change the plans on the fly. Yeah, and, and the, rangers that that were, the Rangers that got caught up climbing up to get, knock out the guns, those guns that were on top there, I mean, even though they weren't there when they got up there. But that, was, that, they uh, didn't, uh, stop, yeah, that didn't stop them. They knew there was someplace. So the, yeah. the, the leaders assigned a reconnaissance patrol to go inland and find them, and find them they did. They had moved them. They had moved them about a thousand, about a kilometer, a kilometer and a half further inland, and this patrol found them. And then you've got to press one if you want to get in here. Hang on, yeah. i got to let everybody know you have to press one if you want to talk because, uh, I mean, you can still let Anybody can call in and just listen, but if you want to talk, you've got to press one. But uh, in about ten minutes, then it goes to show gets cut off the live part, and uh, if you hang up on the, on, the, on the phone, you won't get back in. So, uh, so that'll be it for there. But if you want to get in here, then if you're in now, you won't get kicked out in 10 minutes. I just want everybody to know that. But if you want to talk, you got to press 1, everybody. So anybody wants to make a comment, why don't you, I mean, you can talk about anything you want. I mean, we're talking about uh, Operation Overlord, but, you know, you don't have to talk about that if you don't want to. Um, I don't, I don't uh, you know, I don't chop people's heads off. I'm not like other podcast shows where, you know, I have to dictate the uh, the uh, the uh, narrative of the show. Uh, it's not about that. But uh, it's about, you know, talking about the problems we face today, which which is the way we have to learn from history. And we're, we're, and this history, we have these people that are still alive today from World War II that could tell us firsthand what happened. Yeah. Once they're gone. And, and again, Joe, uh, they did find those guns. They found those guns, and the Germans were, were getting an address from their battery commander. And they could see him in the field just a few, a couple, a hundred or so yards away, getting briefed from their commander. And they said, okay, they got their backs to us. They ran up there with thermite grenades, with thermite grenades in the breaches of the howitzers, melted the traversing mechanism in the breach box, and they had effectively rendered the guns useless. And they went back to the, to the ranger units on, on Point de Ho. 
So they did yeah, well, find they a gun they had it. Yeah, yeah, it was out of 200. And those, uh, what, those four, could have made a real mess on Utah Beach. Yeah, well, it was 240 Rangers there. I think it was 246 Rangers, and only 90 uh, survived. So, that's, yeah, they uh, were you know, shot. The, well, <laughs> not all of them were killed, but a lot. They killed and wounded. They had something like 60 percent casualties. Yeah, they crazy. I mean, that's 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 yeah, that's crazy. sad. But uh, Omaha Beach was a real bloodbath, though. I mean, that was just oh, beyond yeah. belief. Yeah, the but, guy testified to it. I mean, in eight it. hours, they had over 2,000 men killed, and many of them were killed by a single machine gun. This guy named Heinz Verlow. Severlo, who was a machine gunner with the 352nd Division that had been moved into. It was the only division they missed when it was moved mm-hmm. from the Russian front onto the beachhead and had a corps of veterans from the Russian front who were, were much better quality than most of the conscripts from the occupied territories and the other uh, resistance positions on the coast. These guys were vets, at least the corps was, and they were pretty good troops. And this one guy, this several old man in the MG-42, he probably killed about 1,200 Americans all by himself. Wow. Make, that's how many killed him from his gun position. My Lord. Ugh. Anyway, that's how bad that it was. I mean, and, and, you know, and, like, <clears throat> everything went to hell because all the plans were just shot to pieces. Everything was going, was, was I mean, everything. Yeah, but why did he build that Atlantic going. Wall? Why build that Atlantic Wall if they cut through it in one day? One day, yeah, it cost they a lot. Did, they did, didn't they? But remember, an obstacle, the Atlantic Wall is nothing but an obstacle. An obstacle is not meant to stop anything because you can blow holes in it. It doesn't matter what yeah. the obstacle is. Obstacle is meant to impede and slow down the troops so you can commit your reserves to where they're landing. That's the, And it succeeded in that. If the panzers that Hitler had in reserve and von Rundstedt and Rommel were arguing about where to put them because um, – Rommel had experience with American air attack and no, uh, Allied air attack in North Africa. Rommel said, "Look, every time once the Allies have attained air superiority, we can't get any rest from them. They're going to hit us. They're going to destroy any attempt to move reserves any appreciable distance. So we got to station the reserves, like the Panzer units, the tank units, near the beach, so they don't have to move very far." And then they'll get inextricably intertwined with the troops on the beach, and that'll yeah. negate, to a great extent, close air support and naval gunfire support. So Rommel wanted them near the beach. Yeah, yeah, well, they, Rommel they, wanted them near the beach. Von Rundstedt yeah. didn't want them near the beach. He was, see, they had a split command in Normandy. Von Rundstedt wanted to place them where you, somebody with your hand place up. Reserves, yep. where you place them well behind the forward edge of the battle area, and you commit them to where it's going. So you got more flexibility as to how far you can send them. And that was yep. the argument. And Rommel was the right one, but Rommel, you know, Rundstedt was going by conventional military logic. It was lucky for the Allies that von Rundstedt won. And well, Rommel was been a different outcome, definitely. It, Look, it most definitely would have been most different. They would have propelled them there. back into the sea. But, yeah, if they'd have had the 21st Panzer Division there to go down to the beachhead, they would have overrun Omaha Beach. They would have turned right and left. They would have split uh, the Allies in two. They would have cut a, a quarter between the two, and they would have rolled up the British and Canadian beaches on sword, Juno, and gold. It would have been a route. They would have probably been pushed back. 330. Hang on. I got 330 here, uh, Sarge. Hang on. I got somebody that put their hand up. Amy, you got to press 1 when you get on. I won't make you wait that long, I promise. Go ahead there, 330. Tell you what, if it had been me and Sarge on that beach, there would have been hell to pay. 
Yeah, yeah, well. Let's take Stanley from Akron, Ohio, buddy. Uh, where were you last night? You know. I was but anyway, anyway. Uh, and I, my phone ahead, died, and I had to go try to get my other phone. So I, by the time I got back, you guys were already done. Oh, okay. Well, we had uh, Mr. Warren from the New Orleans show call in, our China-loving man who loves the Chinese government so much. Uh, I don't know where he is right now. Where He, he was the in the chat room. He blasted a bunch of stuff in the chat room there talking about uh, something about WorldBank.org news. Uh, 800 million people out of poverty. Uh, new report uh, looks at lessons from China. Yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah. What's this guy do? Like, reading comedy? Yes. Are you supposed to go over there and trying to people's paradise over there? I wish I heard that son of a bitch call in. Yeah, sure. you know, he is nuts. He's nuts. <laughs> I mean, where does he come with I, I believe, like Sarge said, that, that son of a bitch right there, that guy's that lost his mind, or he's such a, he's putting on such a show that he ought to get an Academy Award. Really? I mean, he can't be that far left. He just can't be. No. No, how could you say he's within the conventional mainstream of progressive left thought? I mean, I don't think you must not have much experience lately with the new progressive left, because they're even further left than he is. Believe me, he's within the conventional mainstream, just a little bit to the left of it, and not by a huge amount. Well, yeah, he's, yeah. Uh, he's uh, this guy. There's another one here. I got these people on here on this uh, like social media today. Just to change the subject here, I got this, this clown here. He goes, demons can monitor your thoughts 24/7, right? And, and he this is what he writes. Uh, this is what he writes, right? He writes. What the heck did he write here? Um, well, this is funny. Demons, it's hilarious. Like as in, yeah, yeah, like it's hilarious. But. The, <laughs> yeah, he, I mean, he talks about how he, you know, the horns, horn, he tells, he tells some story about horns honking, and I, I really want to read you to my reply what I, what I wrote, but uh, I can't oh find God. it right now. But this guy is, uh, I mean, where do these people come from? That that uh, he says, like he says that horns honk or something. I don't know where where, where is it. I gotta find it. It's funny, man. When you read, it's hilarious. It's like this is what's out there. What demons read your mind? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. certainly occupy your mind. Why couldn't they be able to read them? <laughs> well, they well they read exactly. your mind and right, right in front of them. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Let's see. Uh, let's see. Do not occupy dimensions. I don't know. I, I read it. I read a comment and then I, I, I replied back to it with something, and uh, he was sarcastic with something else. But he, he said. Um, you will be targeted only if you are a serious threat to them. If you are a serious threat to them, their boss, the devil, will contact you <laughs> and persuade oh, you to be, to be no. with them. I mean, <laughs> their boss. Uh, he said something about honking horns and cars driving by. He, he, he knows how to beat them or something, you know. And, and I said, yeah, I, when I walk out my door, I wait for two honks, too, and then I flip him the bird and tell him where to go. And, you know, I, mean, I just roll with some big sarcastic reply. And, you know, <laughs> Hey, that, oh, uh, man. that last video you were playing about the banking, did, is that the Zeitgeist movie you, that clip you were playing out of? Yeah, it is. I got 320 wants <laughs> to cut their hand up, too, so let me take them. Yeah, that was uh, did you watch about the Federal Reserve. Thing? Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah it was on no, seven, minutes, seven minutes long of the Federal Reserve, but it sums up the Federal Reserve pretty good. Yeah, go ahead, 320. <laughs> I just wanted to say hi, Joe. Oh, hello. How you doing? Good. How are you? All right. <laughs> We've been having. Uh, I haven't heard, we haven't heard your voice in a long time on here. But uh, what do you think? Is the end is coming, or what? They're going to pull the plug on us, or what? <laughs> We've been talking about this for years now. <laughs> there's too many. There's too many. We the people. We're in control. 
Yeah, I think so. But 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 don't look good though. I mean, look at Biden. Look at Biden in this uh, and these these. I was doing, look, we got this guy that calls in here into the show. We were just talking about him. He loves China. He's uh, he's uh, uh, talks about how. We, yeah, yeah, he thinks we're going to be more free when China takes over the United States. That's what he's hoping for. He might be an agent of China. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Hey, hey, hey they got, you know what the Confucius Institutes are, don't you? Yeah, confusion. <laughs> confusion. Well, no, they, well, they call them confusion. Yeah, confusion would be a better term for them. But the Confucius Institutes are everywhere, and they were funding a lot of uh, educational projects in the United States, and they had toeholds in many of the major academic institutions in the United States. Oh, I think he just pressed oh. one, Sarge. Go ahead, go ahead, finish your point. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, but, they, they, you know, they, they had major toeholds in many of the academic circles in the United States. So it, it, it certainly is understandable the Chinese influence, and certainly in, in academia, in the corporate world. And let's not talk about what they do to, um, to get uh, politicians over to their side. Well, they yeah, have a term, they, yeah. But I can't think of what it is right now. They, they have a... You know, using uh, political figures to get them to their side and do their bidding. They got to turn. Oh, I know. Think of what... Look at the Ocasio Cortez supporters and all the. Look at the uh, one of Minnesota then, where Mike Ball is from there. For all the Westerners God. out there who believe in, in, in leftism, they actually believe the Chinese are leftists. And they're, well, they're leftists, but they're fascist leftists. I'm yeah. talking about the Chinese. Let me see private caller is, Sarge. Let me, I don't want to make them wait too long because we're in overtime. Go ahead, private caller. Well, greetings. This is Brother Warren. Brother oh, Warren host in New Orleans. Wake up. I had a. I, I was minding my own business. I, I was minding my own business, and the crow came by to my window and said people were talking yeah. about me. And so <laughs> I'm gonna call in, and I'm and I'm gonna tell you, I am an admirer of China. China has done an outstanding job of transforming their right. society, and China is the future in leading other nations into a peaceful world. I'm for China. <laughs> well, if you love China so much, we, we are, you were offered a plane ticket, free and clear, to go head over there and live and try it out firsthand. No, uh-uh. no opposite. If you guys not happy, if you guys not happy here, you all can take a plane ticket and go to Europe somewhere. Uh, well, whoa, 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 why do I want to go to Europe? This is my country. What the hell do you think you want to go to Europe? You think you want to be like a Belgian? Hell no. You want to go? You want to go to your fatherland? I got no desire to, to be like the Scandinavians over there either. You want to go back to your fatherland? In a lot of ways. <laughs> All right, now let's not let's not let's let's let make his make his points now. <laughs> Why do you dislike America so much? What gives you the impression? Because I admire other countries, that means you dislike the country you're from. That doesn't make any sense. Well, you're right; it doesn't, but it appears that uh, way. Culture that is antithetical, antithetical to the American way of life. That's why. I mean, it's almost a polar yeah. opposite in many respects. Yeah, but but go ahead, let him finish. Go ahead, let him. Go ahead. So you don't. So you do like America. Look, I can't have I can't have the myopic, Eurocentric view you guys were raised with. I can't be that way. Okay. okay. Well, I'd like well, to know your well, view. Well, we're asking you why. Why could you not? Well, you asked the question, and I answered your question. 
You said, well, how can I believe it? I said, well, it's incongruous. That's why. Because what the Chinese believe in the way they govern their culture is almost a polar opposite of the way we, at our best, aspirational best, believe we ought to govern our country. It's almost that's a polar opposite. That's none of your business how other why. people... But, that, but that's none of your business how other countries conduct themselves with each other. That's not your I didn't concern. say it was. I'm answering your question. Yes. But, but it is our business if they affect our allies. If we have allies in China, and China went there uh, hacking into our uh, computer systems. Went out. Now, look, China is a threat to our freedom. There is no doubt about that. They're a communist country. China is no threat to your freedom. That's, that's totally untrue. That's a complete lie. That's a complete lie to say something like that. Really? I just okay. got to a documentary for the gentleman who lived in China for 10 years. He exchanged cultural information with the, for 10 years. He was part of a program to exchange cultural and other information with the Chinese. And he explained thoroughly the way Chinese people are indoctrinated. In fact, the Chinese have a law that says any Chinese citizen, any Chinese citizen is obligated by Chinese law to conduct espionage on behalf of the Chinese government when and if they are asked to. That is part of Chinese law. He explained all of this. So what do you think there about that, Mr. Warren? I don't think I think it's a bunch of bullshit. I don't think nothing of it. Well, then you don't. Apparently, you don't know anything about Chinese law because you can look it up. It's right there in the open. And it's not you don't like know anything stealing. about it either. You don't know anything about I mean, it. Either. They, they make their point. citizens aware <laughs> of it, so they know point. their you obligation know if and when their government calls upon them. All right, let's ask let's ask a couple of the callers that are other callers that are on the line here. Let me ask three two zero. What do you think about uh, China? I mean, do you think China is a threat to the United States at all, or do you think that we should, you know they're a friend of the United States? I mean, what do you think? In your opinion, if you have no opinion, that's fine. But what do you think? Three two zero. I thought you said three two zero. Okay. No, my the, the female, if she's still there. Yeah, I'm still my, here. I missed it. Well, I was just asking you, what, do you think China is a threat to the United States at all? I mean, do you think that China is our friend? I mean, do you think that China – I mean, well, I mean, do you think there's going to be a future conflict? Or what – is China a friend or foe to the United States, and why? Well, it can be both ways. I can see his point of view. I'll, okay, I'll, I'll give China this, okay? Education. The reason why they are so far advanced in education is because their teachers – Every two years, switch subjects and switch grades, and they have to teach us a whole new subject. I mean, they're so far advanced, and I watch things. I actually have my kids watching things to learn things because it's an easier way, simpler way, but an intelligent way to teach children how to learn in advance. I'll give them that. Okay. As far as dictatorship, fucking bullshit, no. <laughs> I agree. I'm going to keep my fucking gun. No government's going to take it away from me. Yeah. Period. And no government's going to ban your free speech. Yeah. Well, Mr. Warren, you want to reply to that before I let the other caller maybe give an example? The vast majority, the vast majority of the world referred to as the global south is with china 
when you leave out of your bubble in the United States and travel, because most of you have never gone anywhere outside the United States, you will see that the world is moving away from the United States. The United States has nothing to offer but to give people weapons to fight wars and to put people in economic debt. China has soft power. It builds stuff. It goes in the country and builds infrastructure. It builds roads. It builds bridges. It is not the same as the U.S. and the EU countries. The influence, the global influence of U.S. is on the way down. Deal with it. You ain't going to stop culture. China. You ain't going to stop China, so you don't need to be talking about this all the time. <laughs> Uh, right. uh, we don't have well, to. Well, uh, China will stop itself. Communists will destroy. Communism will destroy itself. No, it no, has. no, no, no. You, you, this sucker here, this sucker here, being destroyed. You in a sucker no. is being destroyed. No, okay. no, the United States. Well, I don't think the United States is being destroyed. We're still the most powerful military in the world. We still have the uh, world's renowned. Your elite. Your elite is robbing its American people, putting you further into debt and giving the elite and the wealthy more money. Because of infiltrators like you. The wealthy and the poor is expanding here. Because of Um, infiltrators like you, anti-American, God-hating, not God-fearing people. You guys are are so sad. It's not even funny. You're so sad. Well, well, it's true. What do you do that's patriotic? I mean, you you are an enemy of the state. You are an enemy of the people. Look, sir, all of that stuff you're talking about, sir, all that stuff you talked about, I don't live. I don't live by that kind of stuff. Women are forced into the military. Women are forced into the military. And you know what? I'll take all the Americans and all their heart over five million Chinese and you because we have something to fight for. And you know what? If it's so bad here and you don't like it, why don't you pack your shit, and get gone, and go on over there, and we'll see you down the road then. Oh, wait a minute now. Wait a minute now. He can't demoralize us as readily from China as he can here. So his job is to stay here. <laughs> hey, well, I have no internet. He can demoralize us. We've got to understand that. But look, I, I, just want to, I just want to tell you where you go to look this up. It's called the National Intelligence Law of the People's Republic of China, and the provision I'd like to refer you to is Article 7. This law was passed in June of 2017 and was updated 27 April 2018. And you will look in there and read it, and you will see it mandates upon the demand from the Chinese Communist Party or agents of the Chinese government to conduct espionage in any country where they may be located once they are importuned to. So I'm not yeah, making it up. And when it comes to yeah, weapons, I'm making it up. And I got wait a minute, one more thing, Joe. When it comes to yep. weapons, I got shot with a Type 56 AK clone uh, that was manufactured in China. And I'm gonna that was fact, given yep. by the Chinese to the North Vietnamese, and one of them shot me. So they exactly. use weapons well, well, other country. Let me let me put Mr. Warren this charge. Let me, Go, hang on one second. Let me just put these facts to, uh, out there, Mr. Warren. You complain about the United States and the racism and the oppression of the black community. Listen, documented human rights abuses in China, uh, the coercive population, the control methods, forced labor, arbitrary detention, and internment camps, torture, physical and sexual abuse, mass surveillance, family separation forcibly, repression of the culture, and religious expression banned. In China, and you think that's on the march? That's what the globe is going to want and see as the humanity wants that? 
No, I think that you're you're being uh, evasive to a reality, and that is China's economic model of industrial capitalism, that is building and producing things and investing in its own country is what developing countries are looking to as an example. The U.S. has no high-speed trains. It is not invested in infrastructure at all. In fact, bridges are crumbling, roads, you don't have that. Why? Because finance capitalism runs the United States. What is finance capitalism? Wall Street, banks, real estate, we call the fire sector. They don't build anything. They just play with money. They just gamble with money. That's why you had a bank collapse in 2008, and you just recently had three banks collapse because that's what finance capitalism do. And, and what about capitalism the China? What about the policy issues in China? Let me finish, sir. Let me finish. Industrial capitalism, which the U.S. gave away, is what uh-huh. build things. Okay, and so that's why China is the manufacturing hub of the world. It is now out producing and selling cars than China, than Japan now. This is the uh-huh. way it's going. The U.S. cannot compete. It cannot He's finally saying something that bears truth. We've been investing in hedge fund managers and all these capital uh, these finance tricks and all that. And true, we have voluntarily given up our number one position as the number one manufacturer in the world. And he's got it there. But that is not the traditional way of the United States. We have abandoned it because of people who have come in and corrupted the institutions of the United States. It's not something that happened organically or naturally. Sarge, the people that have corrupted the United States are the greedy, capitalist, corporate CEOs and managers Culture 
to look at non-white people as the enemy. That's the culture we practice well, right now. Well, you know what? Sometimes you're right because they have this attitude that you have. No matter how much we give them, no matter how much freedom we allow them to have, and you know, and and it, it just has to stop. I think this is what the you problem get, is. No, no, you know, it, you it, get it, raped. It, this political view that you have has got to stop. It's you dangerous. Get, it's un-American. You get raped. You get raped and robbed by your own wealthy white men, but you're not angry with them. You take it out on non-white people, so you take it out on. Uh-huh. We we can walk and chew gum at the same time. Believe me, we can yeah. we can identify all the problems in this country that have popped up in the last fifty years. We can identify both threat, and we do. You you are not in any kind of reality, Sarge. You don't know who you're hanging with. Uh, I'm ready to explain my position. I don't just narrate. Who you? Who's he hanging with? Who's he hanging with? I want to explain it because this is this is a this is a problem within the black community because any any black man that sticks up for the Constitution, this is how he's they're attacked. But I, I, I mean, this is very interesting. But go ahead. What, who's he hanging with? Who Sarge? Yeah, you made that comment Sarge, just now. Sarge Sarge is the kid who watches the cowboy movies. Where the cowboy kills the Indians, What's wrong with that? And he wants What's to wrong identify. With that? He wants to identify with the cowboys and don't What's realize that? that he himself is like the Indians. What's wrong with that? You might want to ask me what I identify with instead of telling me. I'm right here. Yeah, I know. But, 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 Sarge, I'd like to know what's wrong with that, though. What's he supposed uh, to do? Well, Is he supposed I, to wear his well, pants well, down by his ankles and, and down to the benefits of the United States? Is for Warren a detriment? Anything. <laughs> yeah. But I would like to know what's wrong with him wanting to watch cowboy movies. What's wrong with that? Because what's the cowboys, the, because the cowboys, as glorified in Hollywood movies, killed the indigenous people, removed them from their land. Really? Okay. Well, so you're, well, you're, we, yes, they did. So they, hold they, on, they wait did. a minute. So we, hold up. So, so we, as black people, Sarge, we're in the same position the Native Americans have been in. Uh, no, so you root, no, for your own, you root for your own. Wait a choice. second. Wait a second. What, who's removing you from the land here? Who's removing you from the land here? I got I got sent here. You stole me from my land. I stole you from your land? I well, did? When, when did you get stolen from your land? Where were you born? Yeah, where were you born? Where were you born? Mm-hmm. How did you get stolen from where you were born? They stole you from Africa? I mean, if you went back to Africa, Mr. Warren, if you went back to your so-called land, those people over there wouldn't even want you over there. I've, it's I've been sure. done. I've been, been to Africa tried, several times. That's a complete no, lie, what you're saying. No, that's, that's a complete not a lie. complete lie. That's a complete lie. That's a lie. I understand the powerful attraction of the narrative, but, you know, the narrative becomes a little tiresome after a while. we got to get down to brass tacks. And the brass tack is more interesting than yeah, the Even if the narratives are Hollywood myths about cowboys. Yeah, yeah. You don't Hollywood indulge in history. What, what, why is Hollywood, Hollywood, Hollywood is, his, is his history teacher? He's not even African-American, so he can, he can claim he's claiming the wrong deal here. He's from Cuban and uh, French Creole descent, he said last time. Look, on my birth certificate, on my birth certificate, no matter how we look, it says Negro on my birth certificate. Well, what, what are you what supposed are you? to be? What are you Where supposed are you to be? What is it supposed to say? I, I, was born, I was born in New Orleans. 
Yeah, what, what is the most mistake to your race? Yeah, you know, what, 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 look, look, hold on, wait, wait. One thing about these lynch mobs, y'all try to put the rope around my neck one at a time, please. Nobody well, tried to put the rope around you. You said it said Negro yeah. like it was a complaint. So I'd like to know what you think it should have said instead of Negro. No, no, I'm not complaining because it said Negro. I'm I'm just letting you all know that's what my birth certificate and my parents' birth certificate and before them, that's what the birth certificate says. Rationality or linear reasoning. It is a he circular turned, argument designed yeah. to obfuscate 
did it. Yep, and, 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 they, and when they get into a crowd mentality, this is what they do. They start arguing. They don't let you finish your point. They never come with facts. They never answer the questions. Sir, they I make up their here, own history. I, I, sir, I come in your room like the man I am by myself, and I confront each and every last one of you. When's your next show? Okay. Are you I willing to answer a question about the statements you have made here tonight? Now, let me I, this, I, I, I don't want to lecture at you, but Joe. I want you to... I want to call into his show. Hang on, Sarge. I want to call into his show. I want to call into his show and let him mute me. It's amazing to me how he won't take the opportunity to do it, because I, I believe that the, the arguments he would make are not coherent. Well, first of all, but hang on. Sarge, I want him to no mute home. me on his Sarge, next show, because that's what he's going to do. Sarge, you have no home training, so I wouldn't let you in my house, because you wouldn't wipe the mud off your foot before you walk in the door. I am obstreperous with, with obtuse people. You're right. I have little patience <laughs> for them. I have no patience for people who act like poles. Now, now that's Joe, why let me I'm this, Joe. you to explain your positions, which you repeatedly refuse to do, and like the gutless poltroon you are, you don't. You come and attack now, me. Yes, now, you're Joe, right. I don't have you, much you, patience Mr. Warren, you do attack. You do attack. You have to find somebody else who does, because it ain't me. Yeah, you do a text just consistently. But go ahead, Mr. Warren, because you won't tell me when your next show is. But go ahead. Please please give me a beat around the bush I, I, answer and I, try to lecture I, I, me. Go I ahead. Like, I, I like you, Joe. I like you and Sally. Y'all y'all, y'all, y'all are decent people somewhat. I like y'all. But <laughs> in, okay. in the Muslim, let me put it, in the Muslim religion, I'm not a Muslim, but the prophet Muhammad was the last prophet in Islam. And so there's something called the hadith. The hadith means the sayings of the Prophet Muhammad. And one of the sayings of the Prophet Muhammad is, one learned man is harder on the devil than a thousand ignorant worshipers. And I always strive to be that one learned man. But And you quote the Prophet Muhammad, uh, so you also believe that if you wake up in the morning when you have earwax ear in your ear, the devil pissed in your ear? Uh, no, so let me quote, no. To prove that I don't, I don't believe in Muhammad per se, let me quote from a, a late president, and let me quote from Lyndon Baines Johnson. It's a very prescient quote here, and I don't you remember remember Lyndon Baines Johnson. But look, let me find a quote, and you all can keep talking. I'm going to find a quote. Well, I can find a million quotes too. I have my own quotes though, and my no, this quote is this: "No, this is a very powerful quote." Well, I'd like to just That's know when your next show is. I mean, you, you, you said you have a, I have, a powerful I haven't show. I haven't scheduled it yet. Okay, let me mm-hmm. see. Is this Okay, I think I have it right here. Okay, this is what Lyndon Johnson said, and we're going to talk about Well, you about did one this. the other night right after my show. I remember that, and all you did was right. talk about but, white nationalism. Let, let, let me tell you what Lyndon Johnson said in the speech. Okay. He said, if you can convince, if you can convince the lowest white man he's better than the best colored man, he won't notice you're picking his pocket. He'll, yeah. hell, give him somebody to look down on, and he'll empty his pockets for you. That's powerful coming from a white man, a southern white man. That's powerful. And what is he saying? Okay. He's saying, tell white people they are better than the best black person. Give them such, and then we can rob them. We can take their money. We can rip them off. They won't notice it as long as they're looking down on some black person or some other person. And that's what I hear when I hear this kind of talk against China and, and, and other groups. Against China. So what? What? So you, so if 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 we were, we're to speak out against any other country, one of the major powers in the world, I don't think that fits. 
Yeah, I know, but but I'm just saying, what countries do you say, I mean, if we attack another country and the character of another country and the policies of another country, you're going to disagree no matter what because it's coming from a white person or a white policy or a white government. Let me give you a very brief, let me give you a very brief, let me give you a very brief historical world overview, world history view. All non-white people were enslaved, conquered, and colonized by white people. China was a poor country. In fact, if you go back to the 1800s, it was something called a century of humiliation, where the opium wars, where the Chinese were hooked on opium so they could have a market for the British and Americans. Yeah. These people, these people are 7,000 year old culture. They are historically and conscious of their experience. They don't want to go back to being that anymore. I know. Okay. And imagine if it you was not for World War II. What the, United States, what the United States is trying to do, this is what the United States is basically saying to China. Don't you outdo us. You are not supposed to outdo us. We are white people. How dare you commit suicide? Slow your economy down. Um, Put your people back in the pocket. Uh, That's not going to happen. Um, for most of those 7,000 years, China was one of the major empires on the planet conquering their neighbors. For most of it. Ask the Vietnamese about that. Why do you think the Japanese Vietnam, Vietnam is uh, very close with China. Vietnam is close to China to this day. So I don't know what you're talking about. And that's about, about their experience with the Chinese as far as conquest goes. Why don't you ask them? And the Japanese that conquered Korea... You the winner of sex slaves because he has no China. <laughs> Again, though, but if it wasn't for the, I, the, I don't know where are you but, getting but this Joe, stuff Joe, from. Where are you Joe, reading this Joe, from? Joe, Joe, give me your commentary on what Linda Johnson said. If you can convince the lowest white man he's better than the best colored man, he won't notice you're picking his pocket. Hell, give him somebody Johnson to look down this? on, and he'll empty his pockets for you. When did Lyndon Johnson say this? He said that uh, in the 60s. He said that at a... Look, I tell you, Joseph, this idea of the Chinese as a historical victim is belied by the historical facts. China has always been a great power. It's always been a great empire. China was it had a brief interregnum when, yes, China was a colonized country. It occupied China for a brief China time. China was a colonized for country. For time, China was an empire. China was a colonized country and a poor country. And, and within the last 70 cold. years, and within the they last 70 cold. years, it went from being a poor country to one of the most leaders. That's, See, that's you're ignoring what they were for change. most of their so history. Mao, so Mao, so Mao, they Warren. They weren't. So what about them. Mao? What about Mao and the what 30 million well, well, people that, that he Sean, slaughtered? Let me say this: the U.S. going to be was an empire. Deal with that. Okay, now you gotta change the subject. See why he does that? He knows yeah. what I just said was true. He, he, yeah. he was just trying Chinese to make us upset. Because in the 19th century, they had to surrender part of their sovereignty to some of the European powers when they established yeah. the uh, port system on the, on, on the seaboard of China. They didn't have to go yeah. all the way into China and take all the provinces, they established colonial outposts on the seaboard. They didn't do like the Chinese did, just taking over whole other countries. But he wants to ignore all that history. The reason why the West is allowing China. That never existed, that the Chinese were just a bunch of poor little victims. 
The West is allowing China to destroy itself because this is what happens with communism. It always ends up the same way, and history proves it to be true. And that's what's going to happen. They're going to just, they're going to eat themselves out from the inside. But look what you say. If the West is allowing China to destroy itself, what's all the damn noise about then? What's all the hoopla and the fear uh, well, about look, this? They're going through economic hard times right now. That doesn't mean they're going to fall. We know that they can probably recover from it. But look, right now they're making plans to deal with that like any other great power does. They, they are subject to the same dynamics as any other economy is, and right now they're going through a low period, just like we are. I mean, yep. I, when you say I'm not pretending that the Chinese, in, in its essence, is any different than any other power. You are. I know what they are. I know what their history is. And I'm saying I'm putting it in context and perspective. You fail to do that because you are in a cult of worship of the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese system. I'm not. But he likes their system, though. He likes their way of doing things. He says, and they're on the way up, and the rest of the world is taking notice and, and giving, uh, I don't know what, what he means by the rest of the world, what, Russia and Iran? Why don't you go, okay, okay. Yeah. Why don't you go to Africa? And like I said, I see China America? as a great fact, power. I've always fact, seen it as a great power. I've never looked down on it as a bunch of bitches. We see what happened with Venezuela, right? It's always been one right? of the greatest powers in the history of the world. You're let the let one that's the status, not us. We're not doing that, Warren. Joe, Joe, let me read to you. Joe, Joe, let me read something to you from the World Bank, which is no friend of China. The World Bank is U.S. controlled. It's no, it's not U.S. controlled. Let me read this. Since China began to open up and reform its economy in 1978, GDP growth has averaged over nine percent a year, and more than 800 million people have lifted themselves out of poverty. Because the American factory. There have also factories. been significant improvements in access to health, education, and other services over the same period. China is now an upper-middle-income country, and although China has eradicated extreme poverty a significant number of people remain vulnerable with incomes below a threshold more typically used to define poverty in upper-middle-income countries. China's high growth based on investment, low-cost manufacturing, and exports has largely reached its limits and has led to economic, social, and environmental increases. So what I'm saying is, this is from the World Bank. So what you have is China... Economy has been growing nine percent a year, and by before twenty thirty, China's economy will be larger than the United States, and you ain't gonna stop it. Well, I'm not gonna stop it, but I'm gonna tell you right now, China will not by twenty forty be even in the conversation most likely okay Okay. again history proves to be true that communist regimes like china self-destruct okay they will eat their substance like the u.s like the u.s right like the u.s right like the u.s what he says that's kernel of truth but i'm gonna tell you this right now the chinese economy is more dependent on our economy than we are on theirs. Whenever we, right. whenever the United States regains a measure of its sanity, it has a greater ability to switch back to being independent in its manufacturing and technological base than the Chinese does. They need Sorry. our dollars and they need Sorry. our business. They are more Sorry. dependent on us than the Sorry. other way around. They did, they did, they did, at least they right did, now they are. 
charge. They're ditching your dollars, sir. Where are you? What reality are you in? They're ditching your dollars. Oh, they're not going to ditch it anytime soon. They got too much investment. And let me say this. They hold too many of our bonds. You think they're going to give up all that bond money? No, they're not. Do you? They got got something like uh, 6% of United States bonds. Do you think they want to give up all that money? Hell no. Joe, Joe, let me say this, Joe. Right now, there's there's an anger in Europe brewing because the United States has led the EU to sanction Russia, which has backfired on their economies. Now France, Macron, has pretty much said that they're not going to back any type of war against China and don't use Europe as no battleground against China. Now you see Europeans begin to speak out to pull away from the U.S. agenda to go after China. The French ain't never done anything for anybody except make their balloons go down. Man, you know why they're doing that, uh, Warren? Because of this inept, goddamn fool, potato head of a corrupt crap in the White House. It is the most inept foreign policy I have ever seen. They would not be saying this if Trump or someone like him was no in the There's no difference. When it comes to foreign policy, the they ain't no difference. They ain't no difference. They ain't no difference. They ain't no Hang on, according to Peter Earl from the World Bank, okay, this is what he says, but the, the dollar is likely to remain a top global currency, according to the economists, and the odds that China's yen will replace the dollar are essentially impossible. That as it, that's as of April 12th, 2023, he said that. So I don't know where you're getting your information from. Because, sir, are you familiar with the BRICS? Are you familiar with the BRICS? Are you familiar with the term de-dollarization? Have you heard of de-dollarization? Have you heard that term, Joe? Yes, this is what it's talking about. De-dollarization has begun as recent trade deals elevate other currencies. That's what he says. Comma, Peter Earl wrote, but the dollar is likely to remain a top global currency. Okay, so it's not going to happen. No, no, right, hold up. The dollar will remain a top global currency because the euro and the sterling pound are going down. See, one of the things, one of the achievements the U.S. has done by having sanctions against Russia, it has defeated the rival, the European Economic Union. It has, in other words, its ally was also a feared rival. So they have defeated the European Economic Union. Listen to what you're saying. Listen to what you're saying, though. The dollar represents 58% of the global currency reserves. The Chinese dollar represents 3%. 3%. Under (laughs) under de-dollarization is going to decrease. Okay? Uh, China owns a a trillion dollars of U.S. debt. Do you really think they want to forego that much money? By weakening the American dollar or seeing it weakened? No, the they countries, don't. The countries in the global south, the BRICS nations, are trying to avoid the dollar being weaponized against them. So I understand that. It's a long-term proposition. All right. All right. I got something here for you. Sure. It is not a sure thing. Okay. Hang on. Hang on. I got something for you, Warren. It's three minutes long. It's from Steve Forbes. Okay, and they're talking about the dollar. Replace the dollar as the world's most important currency. Beijing is working hard to make that happen. 
Hello, I'm Steve Forbes, and this is What's Ahead, where you get the insights you need to better navigate these turbulent times. Chinese strongman Xi Jinping wants his country to replace the U.S. as the globe's superpower. A crucial initiative for this is supplanting the global role the U.S. dollar currently plays, de-dollarization, he calls it. Most trade is denominated in dollars, and most reserves in central banks around the world are dollars. The greenback is also the primary reserve asset for many international agencies. So eyebrows have risen with special arrangements China has made using the yuan. In a recent deal, China's state-owned China National Offshore Oil Corporation is paying yuan to France's giant total energies for liquefied natural gas. China and Saudi Arabia are closing in on an agreement whereby China would pay for oil in yuan rather than dollars. China's pressing other parties when it can to use the yuan. China is the biggest direct foreign investor in Africa and is now a major investor in other parts of the world. It is rivaling the IMF and the World Bank in loans to developing countries. Now, many politicians, pundits, and policymakers question whether the dollar status as the world's reserve currency can be maintained. Our economy has floundered for most of this century, with growth rates far below our historic average. Our public sector debts are ballooning as wasteful spending remains unchecked. Our central bank is dangerously clueless about inflation. So is the dollar doomed? Will the yuan become the preferred international currency? The answer is no. Countries like Saudi Arabia are harboring deep diplomatic grievances and concerns about our blundering foreign policy, and it will do yuan-denominated deals to express dissatisfaction with Washington. Brazil's new socialist president is doing it to vent his animosity towards the U.S. France's petulant president is pushing his preposterous pretensions to be a big-deal global maker and shaker at the expense of the U.S. But U.S. financial markets are deeper, more sophisticated, and more liquid than any others. China's are still behind. Beijing imposes strict capital controls, an anathema to global traders. Yuan itself remains less convertible than the dollar or the euro. Global payments in Yuan are under 3%. Only 2.7% of central bank reserves of other countries are held in Yuan. So for all the abuses we've inflicted on it, the U.S. dollar is vastly more trusted than the currency of a truculent authoritarian regime. But China could take a great leap forward if it figured out how to link Yuan to gold. The gold-backed currency was absolutely key to the rise of once small and weak entities like Holland, then Britain, and finally the U.S. to become global financial powerhouses. The best way to counter China is for Washington to get its economic act together. I'm Steve Forbes. Thanks. All right, there you go, Mr. Warren. So your dollar, your your dollar, death of the dollar is not going to happen in your lifetime. Okay. Well, I, you didn't hear happen. me say death. You didn't hear me say death of the dollar. De-dollarization yes, means the dollar won't be the The dollar won't be as dominant. And let me rebut that with an article that that was published yesterday in Reuters, entitled "JP oh, Morgan Flags." JP Morgan flags some signs of emerging de-dollarization. And the first paragraph says signs of de-dollarization are unfolding in the global economy. Strategist at the biggest U.S. bank, J.P. Morgan, said on Monday, although the currency should maintain its long-held dominance for the foreseeable future, 
the strains of steep U.S. interest rate rises and sanctions that have frozen Russia out of the global banking system have seen a fresh push by the BRICS nations, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, to challenge the dollar's hegemony. The majority of the world is moving away from the United States. That's his opinion, J.P. Morgan, who, who is just doing that and throwing shit in the game like he, they always have. Okay, the bottom line is, you said it in the beginning, for the foreseeable future. So bottom line is, China can create a war, the bankers can play wars with each other, and listen, the bottom line is this. You're taking sides with China. I'm not taking sides with China. I'm not taking sides with the U.S. dollar. They're both fiat currencies. They will never sustain themselves. You need a gold or a silver currency, and that's why the founders gold, have sir. They, they are using gold, sir. They don't, they Russia, gold. They don't China are using the gold. They are using gold. <laughs> well, they're not using gold right now. You heard Mr. Forbes say yes, the most they are. They important are, thing they, they can do is go to gold. Using ch- the, the, the Russian money is backed by gold. In Russia fact, is frozen Russian, right now. They the, can't the do ruble, anything. The ruble is strong. The ruble is one of the most strongest currencies operating, and that's with hell of a sanctions levied against that country. The most draconian sanctions ever is levied against Russia, and it, and it ruble is doing strong. And, and you know and why that and, is true, uh, Warren? Tell me why that is true. If you don't know, I will tell you why. Because the Russians deal in commodities. They sell things. They sell things that people want. They don't do hedge fund tricks and, and, and de- bundled derivatives and all that nonsense American managers have been involved in in the last 30 years. That is not the American way of business. That is a transmogrification that cropped up recently. It is not the way we're supposed to do business here. The Russians are doing business the way we used to. That's why their ruble is strong. If we can get rid of people like Joe Biden and the rest of these economic whiz kids, we can go back to the strong economy the United States once had. There you go. And get rid of these liberal policies that are destroying the moral foundations of this country. Russia. Anybody get back to the moral hazard of bad investments. Instead of Hang government on, okay. bailouts for banks that do bad investments a deal. We don't Hang do on, okay, moral what? hazard anymore because we've abandoned the principles of morality upon which this country is aspirationally based. That's right. And if we return to that, our economy will get stronger. Dave, yes, go ahead, Dave. Because just like when Trump was in office and we, he straightened out all these idiots that was do- just robbing us blind. But you know what the best part about Putin is and the Russian ruble and China's government and everything else, believe it or not? They don't tolerate the queers and the, the, uh, the kids being messed with. You don't do the bullshit that this pedophilia, Kazarian, <laughs> uh, let's call it black nobility family. If you don't know who they are, look them up. I'm not talking about the skin color black, so you don't go get racist on that. Those people, your Rothschilds, your J.P. Morgans are all in bed together to have been since pre-World War One to fund both sides of armies. And you know what? They fund the Chinese communists. They fund the Russians. They fund the Americans. And they're going to do that because until we call that group of people out and put those sons of bitches in handcuffs and in jail or in the electric chair, whatever it takes, then everybody's going to be screwed no matter what. But, hey, <clears throat> when it comes down to honesty and faith and having some morals, 
It don't matter what you spend your dollar but, on. You know, it's you ironic that Warren is actually correct, but not for the reasons that he thinks. He's actually correct about much of the things he's saying about the United States decline. But it's not because we've got too much American traditions and American uh, uh, philosophy involved. It's because we have too little. We have adopted that which is not consistent with the United States and its traditions. So he's correct yeah. as far as it goes. The problem is if we restore the things he hates about this country, he's not going to be able to make those same complaints. I want to make a comment to 320. 320-8320, you know uh, the republic there. I've kind of broken away from the republic uh, people there. They were on this show for a while. Uh, I don't know if you're still there. Can you hear me, Minnesota? I don't know if she's still there or not. Uh, if she's still listening or not. Once this yeah, all gets straightened out. Whoever does it, whoever straightens it out and does everything, it's the, way, the way Trump is going, I'm no Trump fan. Don't get me wrong. Trump's got problems, and there's a lot of things where he's in bed with these same people. This, he's a businessman. He has to be. Yeah. They, they have to be. All of them are in bed together because there's no accountability held at no level of periodness up, up on top at all, and it sucks. So If you spent half them, your message, Warren, if you spent half his message on freedom – and freedom for all the people out there instead of blaming just the white people for the problems that, yeah. the, that, that, that the black community faces out there, then you might get ahead in the game and you might understand what's really going on. But instead you're stuck in your BLM movement or, or this uh, Farrakhan type of talk that, that you don't understand what's really going on. Why, do you have, why, does every, why does anybody have to be a victim unless you actually are? Let's talk about that. Let's talk about someone that actually commits a crime today, not yesterday, not 50 years ago, not 150 years ago. Today, why do people have to become a victim? Because you know what? They've adopted the pattern and the ability to be fucking lazy. Lazy is an acceptance where I need something. I'm owed something. I don't care who you are. That's the way whites, blacks, greens, yellows, whatever. When they... Rely on that free, free shit. Come on, give me that free stuff. That is victimization because for some reason or another, I can't figure out why, the broom fits my hand the same as it does yours. Universally fits. Now, I don't understand why people can't go day to day and try to better themselves. Where if you have to live in the past, I didn't do nothing to nobody. If somebody does something to me today, then we have a problem. If they become a victim or I become a victim, that's different. But today is where you've got to live at. The past you hear that all the time shit. on these Black Panther shows, the past, the past, the past, the past, the past, the past. Nothing, Nothing about past today. You can't change it. You can't do anything about tomorrow because it isn't here yet. You have to live for the moment. And if somebody's doing somebody wrong and they're a victim now, then they get held accountable, supposedly. I refer to the past as a lesson because of what's happening today. And to break away from it, not to live in the past or be a victim. Exactly. You cannot Amen. Yourself to be, Amen. To, yes. We can be instructed by the past. The We're not supposed to dwell in it. Yeah. Yeah. If you put yourself in that in that circle in that mindset that that's where you're going to stay at, and that's your projection of what you're going to have to live and do things like, well, then guess what? You've already entrapped yourself to be that person, that victim. You're not going to go anywhere. You're not going to gain anything. You know, I've always said this, and my black friends always say this to me. You know what, Tate? Hey, when it gets down there, the shit hits the fan. My mom told me, I got two feet. If I don't like where I live or I'm stuck somewhere, start walking. 
Do your thing. Get out of the rut. If you're in a rut, get out of it. But you can't stay there and expect everybody to feel sorry for you all the time because we're running. I'm flat out of fucking sorries. Zero fucks given anymore. And I'm sorry about my French, but I'm so tired of this. I owe somebody, somebody, and I did something in the past, and so and so. No, I didn't do anything to you. No. And the poor Indians, the poor Indians. (laughs) You know, all kinds of the poor Indian story. You don't hear me say a word about it. I'm Cherokee Indian. And there's the problem right there. But you know what? Hey, Sarge brought up a good point a couple shows back where he said, you know, this when we start demonetizing and we start labeling an actual amount, how much of a percentage of somebody is or something to this or something that, cut the bullshit. It's if you're an American, you're American. We Our past, yes, just like Joe just said, you can't live the past and try to project something good for it. It's not going to be any good. You try to steer around what you already know happened so it doesn't happen again. And why these people want to tear down the past and hide everything is because they want to stay stuck in the goddamn victim mode. That's yep. it. That's the only reason they do it. They don't yep. want to hold the past anywhere in that stuck mode. I'd like to chime in, if you don't mind, Joe. Yeah, go ahead, Mr. Warren. Go ahead. Your turn. Go ahead. The, the, young man that's ju- the young man that just spoke has to realize it is not his place to tell other people how they relate to their past, okay? Now, I'm looking at a story. I'm looking at a story of a black woman that was killed in Florida on Friday. She was 35 years old and a mother of four. The white neighbor had been terrorizing the children for quite some time, mm. calling them the N-word and everything like that. She threw a pair of skates and hit the kids. The kids went and told their mother, and I guess the altercation sure the white lady killed and shot the black woman. Okay. okay. And I have no doubt that the attitude that white woman have is reflective of what I hear on these programs. And I'm sure she and, felt Chinese uh, threat and everything that we and, will. Okay, I'm going to counter that. I'm going to counter that. I'm reading, hang on, time out, time out, time out. And I'm reading the story about 53 black people that were shot in Chicago this weekend, the highest number ever, and I hear the attitude from them, the same as what I'm hearing here now from you, mm-hmm. is that you don't see, address the real problems. See, what, what angers you people about the term victimhood is the, is the reality is you know that blacks have been and are victims of your racism. You want to be the victim, but you're not the victim. I don't want to be a victim. I don't want to have to live like that. I want to be myself and do it and not have a struggle. Being a victim, I'm not a victim, struggle. and I won't be a victim. <clears throat> and if anybody what? tries to cut no, the trespass... I really find it amazing that he found a relatively rare instance of white-on-black violence. Yeah, I know. And, and completely ignores the staggering rate of black-on-white violence when violent crime is interracial, which, again, is relatively rare because most violent crime is intra-racial, but on the occasions when it is interracial-motivated uh, or, or, or actuated, it is overwhelmingly black against white violence. That is, unless you don't believe in mathematics, because mathematics is racist, then the percentage is simply staggering. Yeah, why, why not? Look at the knockout game that that's been going around for several years now, where it's just, it's okay 
for a middle-aged black man to walk up and smack an Asian in the mouth, an elderly woman, a woman, whoever it is. New York City subways are the absolute cesspool of it all. And you're going to compare one instance from some probably trailer park trash jackass that's got the brains in there to God give a goose if she was lucky to do something like that. Because where I live, my black labor across the street, if we had a difference, we'd stand in the street arguing. But, but he made a comment, though. He said, hang on. He said, this is the narrative. He said, where's preaching the same narrative on this show that, that sounds like that, what that poor black family went through down there in Florida? Why, why is that? Excuse, that's his fucking excuse to say that, guess <clears> what, we're racist. Yeah, I mean, why is that? Though, but I want to hear from him. What? Why is that? Why? Why do you make that comment? What are you being told why, here? Why? 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 Why is what? Why is what? The the comment that you just made. You said the you comment I made is I show. have no doubt. I have no doubt that that white woman harbors the same views about people that you all that I listen to on these constitutional conservative blog talk radio programs. I have no doubt. And people who use those views to commit violence against black people, whether they hold them or not, are very rare in comparison to the opposite. That's right. According to you, according to you, that's in the past. No, sir, I got the current figures. You want to hear them? Or do you care yeah, or not you want to avoid those too? Because they are collected by the Justice Department. They call it the Crime Victimization Survey. The Justice Department keeps these figures. The United States Justice Department run by Joe Biden right now. And they've got the numbers. Yeah, how many black-on-black crimes were there? Are there this year? Mass shootings, mass shootings. That's all you hear about. All of a sudden, that's where they now they're shoving that, where they want to attack gun legislation and all that. That's because Chicago... Because but, but listen to this, sir. Sir, listen to this. I bet you, I bet you, but listen to this, Joe. Joe. All right, hang on, hang on. He wants to make a point. Hang on. Go ahead. Go ahead, Mr. Warren. Joe. I bet yep. you when the black person kill another black person and is known about, or the black person kill a white person, that black person get arrested and going to jail, this white woman ain't been arrested yet. Well, they have to conduct an investigation. Because they're still investigating the circumstances and not jumping to conclusions. That's As why. always, you will, come, you will come to the white person defense, That's Sarge. That's what you're As supposed always. to do when you're in law enforcement. I expect that, Sarge. That, well, you well, know, well, that's what you're supposed to do. I know you don't what? believe in it. You believe in a lynch mob when a lynch mob yeah. doesn't go your way. Yeah. Yep. That's right. And we're a republic. <clears throat> so, well, Warren, you know, that, that, question about him. Let me ask you this, Warren. Sarge is on here. I've never met Sarge, and he, I know he's black. He knows I'm white. I don't have a problem with Sarge at all. You know why? Because I can tell when he speaks and his morals and what he believes in are just fundamentally, fundamentally within God and having dignity and self-respect. Now, why do you have a problem with everybody that's white and Sarge? Let me explain something, sir. I'm your best friend. Answer my question. I just want to know why. If I can't, uh, if I'm well, racist, well, I got to explain the answer. I got to explain the answer to your question, young man. Now, listen right, to me, young answer? man. I'm your best friend. Why am I your best friend? Because I'm going to tell you the truth. Now, children sometimes, when they have nobody to play with, they create an imaginary friend. And the imaginary friend is that perfect friend. Sarge is your imaginary friend. He tells you what you want to hear and make you feel good. 
I'm telling you the truth, and the truth hurts and uncomfortable sometimes, but you become a better person after having been exposed to the truth. Uh-huh. So I'm supposed to believe your truth is I should believe more in China and be more, let's how you want to call it, like I should want to leave my country that my father and my family members die for in this country, fighting for this country, because you said so because that's the truth. I don't your know what you're talking about. I have no idea truth. what you're talking about. Well, you just you're trying to tell me that China's so good and everything and convince us that I we shouldn't want to be here. That this is place is no, so bad. You, you, didn't, you didn't hear me, you missed you 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 read all kind of unnecessary stuff in the day. Let me say this. You can do whatever you want. That's what's supposed to be the beauty about this country. You could you could look. You could choose to have an imaginary friend, or you could choose to have a real friend that's going to tell you the truth. Now that's your choice. Do you believe in you the, don't the tell whole the truth? You just narrate. You don't tell the truth. You tell narrations. Do you, do you the truth is backed up by facts. There's no such thing as your truth and my truth. There is the truth. And the truth is only the truth when it's backed up by facts. That's right. Do you believe Not in the subjectivity. Do you believe in the Bolshevik revolution? Do you even no, know what happened with the whole world? Yeah, I told him about wait, that. Wait, wait, wait. I was a racist. Well, what was the question, sir? Do you, do you believe that the whole Molador happened? The Bolshevik Revolution, how every, all the Christians and Protestants were persecuted? The Bolshevik, the Bolshevik Revolution was a progressive thing in world history against the oligarch feudal system in Russia. Protestants and Christians. And the Bolsheviks and weren't the did. ones that defeated it. The Mensheviks and the Social Democrats did. The Bolsheviks came along to sweep up the remnants. So don't That's give right. me that stuff that they overthrew it. They didn't. Well, your Marxist China believes in uh, your Mao come right out of the Bolshevik Kamal, the, the Kabbalah Talmud bullshit. You realize that, don't you? The same beliefs? The Luciferian I know, but Bolshevik. the Bolsheviks did not overthrow the Tsar. They had little no, to do with it. Nope. They killed the Tsar. Yes, they did murder the Tsar and his family. That's the one thing they did. They murdered him after they were going to be given safe passage out of Russia. They murdered them. But they had little to do with overthrowing them. That's not that's exactly right. Sorry, and then after it was happened. over, they conducted a civil war against the so-called white Russians. The red Russians then instituted a civil war against the white Russians. That's what they really did. And then they instituted, and and then they instituted uh, uh, Marxism throughout Russia. Right. And you're asking now, the, the former Khazaria, which is now the Ukraine, is their stomping ground where they were going to continue to carry on with this bullshit with these bankers? What type of form of government does he, do you think that's going to be successful for the people to thrive in, Mr. Warren? What type of government do you want to see? <laughs> You see, you see, Joe, what I'm trying to get you to understand, because you're so held hostage by talking points, I'm trying to teach you how to analyze world economic systems. Hmm. If there's a World War Three, this is what World War Three is going to be about. I want you to listen to me very well. China is, China is practicing industrial capitalism, which the United States used to have. That's kind of what made the U.S. great. 
It produced things. But because of the capitalist greed, the American tradition of profit first, when you want to find a way without paying American workers, without investing the workers to get over cheap, they decide to outsource the manufacturing base overseas. The Americans did that. White American corporations did that. Okay? Now, as a result, as a result, see, I remember, I remember time, I remember time when the saying was, was good for America's good for Ford, however that expression went. But what happened was the finance sector, fire, we call it the fire sector, finance, real estate, insurance, began to take over in terms of the GDP from manufacturing. So these other countries like China and Malaysia and Indonesia and all, they then, by manufacturing these goods, they then began to have access to dollars. They began to have sovereign wealth funds. And so they, they began to invest in their own country. Now, this is what the, this is what the American saying. capitalist class is angry with. You listen, Joe? You're talking about well, a group of people that are working. Oh, Joe, the American, could you put him on mute, Joe, for a second? Put him on mute. The American well, capitalist I... class, the American capitalist class needs other people's markets to thrive. China is over a billion people. It wants into China. It wants China to not have state-owned enterprises because it wants to privatize everybody else's enterprises. But because these countries don't allow American capitalists to take their stuff over, that's where the rhetoric starts. They're authoritarian. They're doing this. They're doing that because the American capitalist class cannot get in their country and exploit the people. So what China is doing, China has built up its country. It's invested. The U.S. is not, there's no investment going on in our cities, in our states. There's nothing. But they want China to stop. They want China to stop developing itself, which is foolish. And so if there's a World War III, which we're on the closest that we've ever been, it's going to be which form of capitalism will reign? Would it be finance capitalism over industrial capitalism? And what finance capitalism does, it keeps people into debt like a feudal system. Guess what you see is going on in this country. All in these cities with people buying up real estate like in New York, Manhattan. I was in New York last week. They're buying up millions. The average people can't afford the rent, so they got to move out. There's a large gap between the extreme wealthy and the working class and the working poor. There's a big gap. But in China, the, the country does not allow individual capitalists to exploit the people. They get dealt with. They get put in jail. They get the country taken away from them. And that's, that's what's going on, sir. I'm trying to get you to see that, that this, this is nothing more than propaganda against China because the American capitalist class want to control those people's stuff. Same with Russia. They want to break Russia up because Russia to them is too big. Russia has all the commodities. American corporations want their hands on that shit. They no, want to privatize Russia's natural gas. They want to privatize Russia's agricultural sector. Russia and China is fighting for their sovereignty and independence from the United States. 
No, Russia is not fighting for its sovereignty. It's invading another. It's invading a sovereign country. They are defending themselves because that country was being prepared as a launching pad against them. What they do is the, within the borders of their own country is their business. Why, why does Russia get to say what they get to do? The, 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 eastern, part the, of, the eastern part of Ukraine, the eastern part of Ukraine is a Russian people. Those Russian people were being bombed by the Ukrainian government, yeah. and they were being discriminated against because they're Russian speakers. Okay? So notice that, Russia, notice that Russia is staying where it is. Russia can go to Kiev if it wants to, but notice they're staying where they are. They're not going to take over that country. They could have been destroyed that fucking country if they wanted to. Well, they, they have they have annexed they have annexed that that eastern part and it ain't going back it ain't leaving their hands and they got Crimea and it ain't leaving their hands. Crimea yeah. was brought up under complete under oh my god, you people believe that bullshit, but you don't have anything to say about Victoria Newland and us over there in 2014 in the Donbass area creating this whole because they elected a fucking Democratic Party. And they want to go over there and put in there. Joe, I really feel, Joe, in sincerity, Joe, I really feel sorry for a lot of y'all sometimes. I really do. I really feel sorry Don't for y'all. Don't feel sorry for me. I feel sorry for you because you're, you're blind Y'all been exploited. Y'all have been, psychologically, y'all have been psychologically abused and exploited. Trump is one of the main who exploited your consciousness. I feel sorry for y'all. Y'all are, Why y'all are, are angry. Why are so intent on giving everyone that opposes them a psychoanalysis and sending you to the nut house if you don't agree? This is another common Marxist tactic. They're constantly yeah. psychoanalyzing you when they're the ones who are the You sound like ass. something left over. You sound like something left over in the 1950s. You're amazing. You sound like something left over. The way you repeat this stuff. They have gulags over there in the Soviet Union for people that say they're enemies of the state and they were crazy because they opposed the regime. Joe, I'm going to let you and the other white guys call into my show. And here you are echoing them like an echo chamber. Sorry. I'm going to let you and your show. I haven't decided yet, but listen listen to what we're going to do. I'm going to let you and the other white guys call into my show, and we're going to talk about why you all feel the way you feel. Who's been jerking you around? Oh, now he's going to psychoanalyze you. What a joke. It's not hey, man, come on and come on with some facts, will you? I'll go on that show, too. Yeah, yeah, we like to know I what that show I'm is. I'm going to tell you right now what he's going to okay, do. Yeah, Already, I'm, he's going to explode me, see, because he knows up, I'll give I'm him a, hell. He doesn't want I'm me call there. Up one, I'm going to call up one evening like he this doesn't and let you all know the time. The comfort dog can't be there to protect you, see. No, 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 Sarge. You're not the black guy in the loud. The black guy in the loud. I'm That's sorry. That's right. You believe in segregation, don't you? That's right. <laughs> the, the, the black guy who want to be a white guy is not I'm allowed. I'm not a bit surprised that you would say such a thing. It fits with everything else you believe. <laughs> well, we got See, because what's been going here. on, notice that quote. Notice that quote that Lyndon Johnson said. I want you to really look that quote up and analyze that quote. Lyndon Johnson was a southern white man. He knew his own people, and he knew what motivates he knew what motivates his own people. And what he was trying to say was, the problem here is that white people simply just want to have other people to look down on. And if you take that right away from them, they don't want to live. That they want to look down on you some know, other people used, so much. He used white people, not just Lyndon Johnson's constituency. He used white people. Because, of course, Lyndon Johnson spoke for all white people, see? This is the way they think. We're nothing but classes to them. 